This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the tools, the information you need to grow a healthier, happier life. You know, it just, it's not always easy, is it? Sometimes you just have to figure out how to do it your way. And we've got a great show for you today. Uh, In in a few minutes, Dr. Craig Malkin will be joining us. He is uh, going to be giving us some information on narcissism and especially how it applies to your presidential race. It's, it's going to be fascinating, believe me. Uh, apparently, a lot of our candidates are narcissists. They tend to just love themselves. And so he's going to walk us through some, some tools, some skills, some information on how to, you know, how to, uh, how to elect a leader that isn't so self-absorbed that they're going to harm the rest of us. So stick with us on that one because things just got seriously crazy in Washington, D.C. Um, so, you know, John Boehner is he's done. At the end of October, he's done. No longer wants to be Speaker of the House, no longer wants to be a congressman. He's done. And as part of that, you're going to need a new Speaker of the House. So, you know, there's already a lot of battles going on to see who's going to take that position. And it seems like, you know, there's there's one congressman that seems to be getting a pretty good leg up in the opportunity, right? His name's McCarthy, and he's from California, I believe. And he made some comments yesterday about the Benghazi hearing that has pretty much tipped everything over in Washington, D.C. So let's go listen to this clip about Hillary Clinton and the Benghazi committee. Everybody thought Hillary Clinton was unbeatable, right? But we put together a Benghazi special committee, a select committee. What are her numbers today? Her numbers are dropping. Why? Because she's untrustable. But no one would have known any of that had happened. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So, uh, not good. Representative Kevin McCarthy, who wants to be the Speaker of the House, is now saying the Benghazi hearings basically were to impact Hillary Clinton's standing in the polls. And he says it's working. So don't, don't tell me it's not working. Her poll numbers have gone down. Well, oh boy. By the way, that is what Hillary Clinton's been saying, is that there's a right-wing conspiracy. And it... McCarthy just played into it. And I'm telling you, it is ticking people off. In fact, uh, Representative Jason Chaffetz, who's on the committee reviewing the Benghazi information, this is what he has to say. Clip number six, please. That's an absolute inappropriate statement. It is not how how this started. We wanted to get to the truth of it. We were being withheld documents. We weren't given access to this information. The more we've dove into this, the more we've learned about it. But that was not the reason we started. We started because... There were four dead Americans, and, and we didn't have answers as to what happened before, during, and after. 
It was never a directive, but I think it's an absolute terrible statement. I think you should apologize. I think you should withdraw it. I think it's an absolute inaccurate statement as to what we're doing and have done on, on the work on Benghazi. Yeah. Trouble in paradise, folks. <laughs> McCarthy hasn't even he hasn't even won the nomination to be the secretary or the Speaker, um, Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. And yet he's already has politicians saying withdraw that statement. Take it back. No, wrong. Probably not, probably not a good start. Yeah. Not a good start. Yeah. Not a good start. Holy cow. <laughs> now, and, and Hillary Clinton's like, yes. I told you. Mm-hmm. I told you there's a right-wing conspiracy. It is crazy town. Man, just when you thought it couldn't get better, it's always, getting crazy. Always fun stuff coming out of there. Isn't it great? Yeah, it gives you great material. And huh? it, does, it totally does. And doesn't it just make your life seem so easy? Oh, so good. Mm. We're living the good life. We're living the good life. So stick with us on that. In um, just a few minutes again, we're going to bring on Dr. Craig Walken, who uh, is going to introduce some research about um, uh, basically a, a research-backed guide for how to pick the next president. Because most of these politicians, most of these leaders that are wanting this position have some form of narcissism. And it's not always like a clinical diagnosis, like you're a sick, twisted narcissist. But it is – they're pretty confident and self-loving. And so there's some ways that you can deal with somebody that is in them into themselves enough to think they can be president – it's great advice. And so we'll be talking with him in just a few minutes. But before we do that, let's get to Kathy Aiken, find out what's going on in the rest of the world. Good morning, everyone. Congress passed a temporary spending measure last night and President Obama signed it. That means the government will continue to run no shutdown, at least through December 11th. Russia continued its airstrikes in Syria today, the second day of strikes in that war-torn country. Russia is defending the action, saying it's helping President Bashar al-Assad in the fight against ISIS. But U.S. Secretary of Defense Ash Carter said the strikes don't appear to be targeting areas held by ISIS forces. He says it's CIA-backed rebels. Secretary of State John Kerry said the U.S. would have, quote, grave concerns should Russia strike areas where ISIS was not operating. GOP presidential candidate Donald Trump weighed in on the Syrian refugee crisis in Europe. And I'll tell you right now, and I'm putting everybody on notice, that are coming here from Syria as part of this mass migration, that if I win, they're going back. They're going back. I'm telling you. They're going back. Trump made those remarks at a rally in New Hampshire last night. Russian hackers reportedly tried five times to break into Hillary Clinton's private email account while she was Secretary of State. The hacker sent infected emails disguised as speeding tickets over a four-hour period in August of 2011. The infected emails asked recipients to print the attached tickets, and that would allow hackers to take control of their computers. No word on whether or not Clinton clicked on those attachments. A new government report yesterday said dozens of U.S. Secret Service employees improperly accessed a job application by Utah Congressman. Jason Chaffetz. The application was for a job with the Secret Service 12 years ago. The information was viewed by at least 45 employees. The idea was to embarrass the congressman because of his investigation into scandals inside that agency. Digesting it, uh, shocked and surprised. It's a bit scary. If they if they would do this to me, I just shudder to think what they might be doing to other people. 
Releasing the information may represent criminal violations under the U.S. Privacy Act. Hurricane Joaquin intensified today to a Category 3 with winds up to 120 miles per hour hammering the central Bahamas. The hurricane's path isn't certain, but officials from the Carolinas to New England are on alert. Severe weather and heavy flooding are possible on the East Coast through the weekend. An Oklahoma death row inmate received a second stay of execution last night. Richard Glossop was set to die by lethal injection after he was convicted of orchestrating the murder of a hotel manager in 1997. Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon ruled on the stay, citing concerns on the chemicals used in the execution. Glossop's stay is for 37 days. His execution was stayed for the first time earlier this month when his attorney said they had new evidence. That was overruled, however, by the Oklahoma Court of Appeals. The remains of an 18-year-old Colorado man who had been missing for seven years were found yesterday in the chimney of an abandoned cabin less than one mile from his home. The remains were found when the contractors tore down the cabin in Woodland Park. Dental records were used to identify Joshua Maddox, who was reported missing in May of 2008. The death was ruled accidental. Okay, Matt, you ready for the numbers? Yes. 21. Yes. 39. Uh-huh. 40. Mm. 40. Or 55. Yes, ma'am. 59. And? Do you have it? No. Uh, I had 58. Oh, Darn it. One number off. Blasted. Those were the winning numbers. And someone is $310.5 wow. million dollars richer. Holy One ticket. How? The winner of the Michigan lottery was announced in that a ticket apparently came. Are you sure you weren't in Three Rivers, Michigan at a gas station? Yeah, Over no. Over the weekend? No, no that wasn't me. That wasn't I was you. in another okay. gas station trying to light a, a <laughs> the spider. spider on fire. <laughs> I thought yeah. that was you. That was me. Okay, so the winner has not been identified, but would you really go before the cameras and say, it's me? No way. Come come find me. Uh-uh. I have 310 I'd send million. my wife. <laughs> Honey, can you go pick up the money for the... Isn't $310 million? What would you do with it? Okay, seriously. If well, you... after taxes, yeah. I'm wondering what that would be. Because sometimes they get the yeah. option of what? Just right. getting the big chunk? Or I think I'd over. take a big chunk. I think I'd take the big chunk. So what? I don't know. What? What do you think? Let's just say you get 200, 200 million, million. 150 million. Yeah. Oh. I would buy a beach home mm. either in Hawaii oh, yeah. or um, Newport Beach, California. Yeah, I love Newport. Yes. So and that's what you do. I think that's what I'd first Would you do. keep working here? No. Rude. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. Wow. That yeah, hurts. that kind of <laughs> that Ugh. kind of money and I'd probably go buy a nice um I don't know, Mercedes or mm-hmm. BMW convertible. Yeah. White. Wow. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. So I'm pretty Sheesh. specific. Yeah. And you know exactly. You I'd wax my back. <laughs> I'd start with a waxing. <laughs> Then okay, I well, would, that's only about fifty dollars. Then you I still would, have several Is that fifty dollars? Yeah, I know, but I'm I hear that it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of pain, and it's a lot of recovery. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks I'm a hairy, <laughs> obese man. Um, hey, let's do that on the show one day, and let's, oh, get, let's no really way. serious. Let's get an anesthetist in someday. Here someday, and if have we her wax your back. if we ever do television, I will wax my back. <laughs> okay, you promise? No. Okay, Terry. Be sure you record that. I'd, Mark I, that soundbite. That is the worst because <laughs> they, they rip it off. But I would then borrow your – I'd see if I could borrow your house in Hawaii. Okay. Uh, I would then – what else would I do? Well, I, I would still the work. because it would be your money. You would? You'd yeah. still work this show? Yeah, You'd I get would. get up this early? Really? No. Well, no. no. I'd pay off – I'd in. pay off BYU and let me you make this an B- afternoon show. You could buy show. BYU Broadcasting. Yeah. <laughs> I'd buy BYU Broadcasting. <laughs> I – I don't know what else I would do. I would buy a car, mm-hmm. but I would. Well, you still save people's marriages. Nah. Oh no. Nah, they oh. can die. Whatever. Uh, I was. I had a. I had a speech last <laughs> night about a thousand people. Wow. I love it. I would do that all day long. Would you really? Mm-hmm. It's my favorite thing to do. Just because 
it's they're just it's live and they're fun and we're laughing and then you are funny. I have well, to say. I'm not funny, but I kind of are. But it was late. It was late. Hey, guess what? I don't want to brag. Okay. Friday, I'm going to a concert. Which one? Sam Smith. Oh, mm-hmm. that would be good. Where's I know. It, where's it at? It's here in Utah at the Maverick Center. Oh. Not to brag. Yeah, not to brag. But it's a pretty cool deal. You have good seats? Uh, yeah, I have a box seat. Wow. It's apparently a box in the back of the stadium. Oh, in the Behind back? the scenes, just in a oh. box. No, I'm sitting so with a bunch of friends. Some friends well. invited me. I, nice. I, By the way, I don't go to concerts. Don't you? No. I'm trying to remember the last one I went to. I'm afraid because sometimes I sleep. You know, about nine o'clock, I get real sleepy. And so in the middle of this concert, I'm going to start just <laughs> snoring away. Don't do that. It's not a good thing. Not a good <laughs> that thing. That sounds fun. Well, see, we'll but if see. you had won the lottery, you could have bought the Maverick Center and oh, had yeah. Sam Smith for a private concert. Yeah, I think I would just really put the money away. You know what I would? I'd pay off student loans. Wow, you still have a student loan? Yeah. Or your kids? Well, I'm loans. old. That's true. And that interest, you know, it's probably close yeah. to that. So. Yeah. Oh, you're in trouble. What else would I do? I don't know. I Good would, thing to think about. I know what but I would really, do. really, I would never let a soul know that it was me. No way. Oh, no way. You know how many people would be coming knocking on your door? Oh, yeah. No. And I'd act I, – I probably wouldn't even move. <laughs> I would just keep living where I live. You I wouldn't buy, buy a boat. I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy a lot of new things. I'd buy a houseboat for Lake Powell. Would you? For sure. Yeah. I forgot about that. Can, can I borrow your houseboat mm-hmm. too? Yep. See, I, I don't okay. need to buy any of this because yeah. you buy it. Now, let's just say this. <laughs> if we all – if we won together mm-hmm. – um, would you sh- like if you bought the ticket? Would you share any with us? Not if you didn't go in on it. No, you just you just keep it to yourself. For sure, seems selfish to me. Doesn't that seem selfish, Ben? <laughs> yeah, I'd Gabby, give you. I'd, I'd buy breakfast. If I you. won two hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. I would give you guys some money. How much? I'd give you thousands. <laughs> I'd probably give you each ten thousand. Oh, okay. Probably, probably not. Okay. Crazy, cool, good stuff. Um, well, let's hope we win. Uh, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Craig Malkin's going to be joining us. And has he got some insight for us? He's an instructor in psychology for Harvard Medical School. And he's going to talk to us about narcissism, which apparently a lot of our politicians are suffering with. They have uh, narcissism, kind of this love of self. And we are going to get into it and find out how you should basically elect or treat or evaluate a narcissistic candidate. What are some do's and some don'ts? If you don't do it right, you're just going to keep feeding this narcissism and they're going to keep acting the way they act. So stick with us, giving you some insight for how you can uh, manage the do's and the don'ts of narcissism and politics. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, after two Republican presidential debates under our belts and the first Democratic debate just a few weeks away, the race for president is in full swing. And with so many candidates and heavy issues facing the nation, voters should take uh, some serious consideration into who they're choosing. And they're choosing the next world leader, right? So here's the deal. Our guest today, Dr. Craig Malkin, joins us, and he gives us the uh, some outlines on the do's and the don'ts of picking our next leader. He's also here to help us understand the good and the bad traits of narcissism, because honestly, let's face it, 
All of these politicians are probably narcissists. Dr. Craig Malkin joins us on the phone. He is the chief uh, psychologist at Harvard Medical School's Cambridge Hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And you can find him at drcraigmalkin.com. Dr. Craig Malkin, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure to be on. You bet. Love uh, having you. And I love this article you wrote, A Psychologist's Open Letter to U.S. Voters. Um, teaching us about narcissism. Talk a little bit about that uh, because I have a lot of clients and, uh, you know, most of their spouses are convinced that they're a narcissist. So explain what is narcissism. Well, there are two main rethinks in rethinking narcissism. And the first is really rethinking what's bad about narcissism. We're used to thinking about the when we most of us out there think of the word narcissism or narcissist we think of stereotypically vain boastful reality tv types yeah mm, politicians sounds familiar yep but there are lots of types of narcissists and some couldn't care about less about looks or fame or money and they might even be quiet so one of the things i wanted to help people do was rethinking narcissism and recognize the signs of trouble that are common to them all the tells if you will and in the open letter, I'm actually outlining, this is drawn straight from the book, a lot of what those tells are that apply not just to the more outgoing types, but to the quieter ones as well. The focus of that article is obviously on extremely outgoing types who are willing to, say, run for president. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to your point, what we get confused about is, yes, there's, we can talk about, about healthy narcissism as well if we, if we have time, but... Researchers like myself and my colleagues, and there's actually two or three other measures uh, at this point that untangle healthy and unhealthy narcissism. They do not rise and fall in perfect step with one another. So it's possible to be high in healthy narcissism and low in unhealthy narcissism and to even think about the kinds of things that encourage the worst behaviors. And that's what we want to think about as Mm. voters. Well, and it seems like, because this is a system too, so if somebody is a healthy or an unhealthy narcissist, we're still, the voters, and in many ways the politicians, um, groom us and are groomed by us. Is that right? I mean, we're we're part of creating this this persona. Absolutely we are, because you can take even... The, the healthiest person who might simply, you know, what, what's healthy narcissism? We know from over a quarter century of research that most people around the world feel a little special. They see themselves through slightly rose-colored glasses. It helps them feel more optimistic, resilient, persist in the face of failure, enjoy big dreams like, say, becoming president. <laughs> right. Um, and the, the, the problem the problem becomes when people become addicted to feeling special. Mm. I mean, that is when you're dealing, when they use it kind of like a drug to soothe themselves instead of turning to authentic, uh, instead of being authentic and turning to people for care and comfort and concern and being open about themselves. That is when it becomes a problem. And we can unintentionally send the message to to politicians, many of whom sort of tip the scales towards narcissism, um, that what we're looking for, say, are infallible people who never apologize. They never admit their mistakes. That is a huge error uh, because it's clear from the research that it's, it's the most extraordinarily narcissistic people who are afraid of 
the kind of vulnerability that comes from saying, oops, that was probably not the best thing to do, that makes them so unhealthy. So even if somebody isn't extremely narcissistic, if we we as voters are punishing people for calling them flip-floppers, say, or for not having enough conviction because they apologize because they want to acknowledge an error, we're not doing ourselves any favors. It's so interesting because, yeah, you can you can just even see it in the political world over the last few days. Some people have an inability to to own it to make to own their mistakes. Others do own their mistakes, but we see them as weak. They're not standing up. They're not strong enough, huh? And we we've been trained to think about leadership that way. And the reality is, when you look at research, there's a, there's even a fascinating study that was done. One of these measures that looks at healthy narcissism. It's called autonomous narcissism. And looked at leaders who are high in this versus leaders who are, say, high in, uh, high in unhealthy narcissism. And the ones who were high in autonomous narcissism, they certainly had big ideas. They had a vision, but they empowered their employees. They empowered the people they worked with so that they brought the best out of them instead of pounding them down, instead of telling them everything they were doing wrong, which is what extremely narcissistic uh, bosses tend to do. Well, and so, Craig, tell me, because we're as we watch these politicians, it seems like, for example, Trump, who's the leader, we it seems like we have a visceral understanding that he's fairly narcissistic, right? He's and, and I He's narcissistic and not even fairly. He's narcissistic. And yet we so many people seem to be attracted to his strength, even though it might be based around an unhealthy addiction to feeling special. And that's where, you know, what I have to be clear about up front is all I can do is sort of tell you and and the listeners out there what boxes you want to check off and yeah. in your own evaluation. Ethically, I can't diagnose anyone I've ever right. met. The nice thing is that narcissist is not a diagnosis. It just means somebody higher in traits huh. than average, which is why most politicians and presidents are uh, tend to score high enough to be called narcissists. Do, do you believe, just really quickly, that uh, overall, there the, the, polit- the, the historic, the presidential uh, presidents we've had historically... Have they been healthy narcissists or unhealthy narcissists from what you – you can't diagnose, but from what you sense? Well, so when we're looking at unhealthy narcissism, again, these are people who are so addicted to feeling special. There's lots of ways to do that, by the way, not just by being in the spotlight and, and right. priding yourself upon having all the answers. Um, but they're so addicted to it, they set aside all their all other considerations, including other people's needs and other people's feelings. Mm. And they demonstrate a pattern that I call triple E, which is exploitation, that is using people to get their needs met, often uh, without conscience, especially if they are uh, of a more ruthless, cold, manipulative type. Entitlement, acting as if the world owes them Mm. and other people owe them. And empathy impairment, that is, 
they become so blind because of their their intense need to stand out from the other seven billion people on the planet. They become blind to how they are affecting other people's yeah. feelings. They're too preoccupied with what they want. Triple E is the is, call that the trifecta of badness. <laughs> <laughs> the dark side. And, and, yeah, and and certainly we already know from the research that uh, that many presidents. Many presidents were extremely narcissistic. Um, one of the one of the presidents has sort of been singled out as showing a lot of this, although he wasn't as outgoing. He was more introverted. Was Nixon, hmm. uh, and it, we're safe to say that if you look at his criminal record, record he was probably tipping into the unhealthy range. Okay, yeah. Yeah, they got him, right? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. And it, it really, I mean, I think it's fascinating. Um, and the, the article, we'll, we'll take a break right now and come back, but the article is in Psychology Today, a psychologist's open letter to U.S. voters. And when we come back, Dr. Craig Malkin will uh, give us some of the guidelines he was talking about, some do's and don'ts for you as a voter, just to make sure that you're not feeding the unhealthy narcissist or political candidate. Uh, it's really empowering stuff. Again, you can go to his website, drcraigmalkin.com, and look at that book, Rethinking Narcissism, The Bad and Surprising Good About Feeling Special. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the line, Dr. Craig Malkin uh, and his book, uh, Rethinking Narcissism, The Bad and Surprising Good About Feeling Special. And uh, Dr. Malkin is uh, joining us to teach us about, you know, how to handle a narcissist in general. But specifically, he's teaching us about you as a voter. If we if we don't, if, if we're not careful we may be feeding the unhealthy narcissistic tendencies of some of our candidates. And he's put together a list of do's and don'ts, things we should do as a voter and not do in order to make sure that we are not electing a narcissist. Uh, Thank you again for joining us again, Dr. Craig Malkin. Oh, my pleasure. What are some of the do's and don'ts you recommend that we focus on as, uh, as a voter? One of the important do's, that I think bothers a lot of people uh, that isn't, you know, when they see that voters are not doing it, uh, is to applaud careful reflection. Yeah. So we have this, this goes back to what you and I were talking about earlier when we were talking about these ideas from rethinking narcissism about how uh, people who are extremely narcissistic are uncomfortable with vulnerability. It's vulnerable to say, you know what, I have new information. I've changed my mind, yeah, and to give a, to good reasons for that. And I think I'm not alone. I think many viewers feel the same way. The reflexive and vacuous, often empty attacks on quote unquote flip flopping, right? They don't help us, and they send the wrong message to politicians. We need politicians who think. We need presidents who think. It requires careful reflection to be aware enough 
that information and situations can change and you might need to correct course. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a changing time. And yes. we want our politicians to be unchangeable. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And and extremely narcissistic people are more invested in maintaining an appearance of infallibility, yeah. which means I, I was right with what I with what I chose, and I, I'm going to stick with it. That is not what we want in leaders. As long as somebody can give carefully carefully reasoned ideas and explanations about why they want to correct course, we need to listen. Yeah. What about insults? Um, I mean, I know that there's some candidates right now that are throwing around a lot of vinegar. What what uh, what about an insulting leader? I, I think I think we as voters need to send the message too that that's not okay. I mean, one of the things that I say, I, I point this out in Rethinking Narcissism, I point it out in the open letter to U.S. voters on Psychology Today, that um, when people name call, when they put relentlessly put others down, we therapists call that emotional abuse. It doesn't belong in politics. It doesn't belong in the White House. And the, the reality is that when people who are, are extremely narcissistic, they use what I call playing emotional hot potato. Mm. That is, they don't want to feel like they're not sure what's going on or unsure of themselves, so they do and say other things to make other people feel insecure or to put them down. It's like that saying, don't knock your neighbor's porch light out to make your shine brighter. <laughs> that is what these insults are all about. And in the research, actually, on extremely extroverted narcissists, they've even found in the lab, say, if they feel insulted in some way, they're more likely to blast other people with obnoxious white noise than people who are, who are less narcissistic. <laughs> really? It's that equivalent. It's, yeah, totally. Uh, oh, have sad. a conversation. Say what you think. Ditch the put downs. Yeah. Yeah. And when you, and that's you can see that just so when you're choosing a candidate, watch for that. Look for that. Yeah. Somebody that's constantly putting people down, um, or a bunch of them that are constantly putting people down, yeah. it's a sign of something. What about feelings? Um you know, some some people wear their feelings on their sleeve. Ben Carson, for example, seems like he's a very pensive, kind of thoughtful person. Uh, but he is he is he too emotional? Do we trust somebody that's too much of a feeler? I think we trust somebody who's capable of showing their. And I agree about Ben Carson. I, I, we trust somebody who's capable of expressing. Uh, say sadness when things are sad, and and, and empathy for. Uh, survivors of major natural disaster, mm. like a, uh, and uh, when somebody is too stoic, when they are too invested in seeming unaffected, or maybe they are just unaffected, what's clear from the research on extreme narcissism, and in particular our research, is that's another really bad sign. Because again, if you're if you're uncomfortable saying being open about any kind of vulnerability, you're going to be pretty pretty much emotionally phobic. Mm. And good leaders need to be tapped into what what voters are feeling, what what we're feeling. Just like in our in our in our family, we want our parents to be tapped into what we're feeling. We don't want them to feel like they're somehow detached yeah. from our despair or our upset. We look to leaders of state, nation, the world, 
almost like parents. We want to think, we want to feel like they care for us. And if we send the message that no, you have to be unflappable, again, that's pushing everyone in the wrong direction. Mm. It's uh, one of your one of your rules uh, or do's and don'ts is don't applaud manipulation and then do applaud collaborative behavior. It seems like in Washington we haven't been able to have much collaboration going on at all recently. So it's almost like we could probably throw them all out. Yeah, we need a sea change, really. Yeah, and it's this kind of thinking. It's what do we as voters put up with? Uh, just because somebody might have good ideas doesn't mean that they're going to be a great leader if they're combative and argumentative and shout people down. Again, that's what extremely narcissistic people do, people who have good ideas, who can inspire, and who can actually rally people to their cause don't need to do that. I've known plenty of great leaders in the course of my work as a psychologist over the years who are part of startup companies or part of existing larger companies and their employees love them they're not they're not viewed as cruel uh, uncollaborative argumentative people right yeah they're 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 into you they're and i guess that kind of goes back to they're feeling oriented they're empathic they can understand your story and hear your story you're you're hitting on the, the core theme, and this does run throughout rethinking narcissism too. When I talked about the tells mm-hmm. that, that are common to eat, whether they're or outgoing narcissists, all narcissists are afraid to depend on people. They're afraid that if they share that they have a need, or they're they're scared, or they're lonely, or they're worried, even in in small ways. They're not sure that people are really going to be there for them. So they tend to find ways, ways to dodge vulnerability. Hmm. You can see this whole list is all about trying to avoid being vulnerable in any way. Man, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's huge. And, and even the, uh, the black and white thinking is another one. Basically, don't applaud black and white thinking. It's just too simplistic. We live in a world that's much more complex than black or white. Exactly. And it's, a, it's another way around uh, to try to collapse things so simplistically is another way around feeling vulnerable in any way, because people who divide the world up in, in, in that way, in, in our field, we have a name for it. It's called splitting. It's, a, uh, it's you know, or you can also call the cognitive distortion. It's bad. It's bad thinking. There's mm-hmm. bad and, and there's good. Uh, and there the twain shall meet. The reality is that's not the way the, work, the world works. Right. And the problem is people who think that way often put you on the bad list. Remember, yeah. Nixon had an enemy list. That's right. That's why, well, yeah, that's right. So did McCarthy. And, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's kind of a tendency of human nature. <laughs> we, we just want to make a list. The good, the, it's, it's, by the way, Santa Claus has one. Right. Right? The naughty and the nice list. But it's a human concept, isn't it? We, it is. we, it we, makes things simpler. Yeah, it does. Uh, but, it, but it also it doesn't allow much room for conversation and working things out. Right. You know, as soon as you've written somebody off as evil, that's it. You're done. <laughs> it's so true. I know you got a big interview coming up in a few minutes, so we got to let you go. But as we as we wrap it up, um, what do you think, Doctor Craig? What 
what what is the thing I can do um, in my life? So if, as as I was listening to you, any of our listeners out there, if we picked up, man, I might be on the verge of narcissist here. Um, what could I do for myself personally and for my family? Is there a way to kind of educate around this? Uh, that's an answer that deserves a, a, a longer response, but I'm going to do what I can. The first thing I would tell you to do is, everybody to do after the interview, you can go to my website, the narcissismtest.com mm. and take a res- take uh, a brief version of the test I have in the book. It's not going to help you figure out exactly where you fall on the spectrum the way I do in the book, but it gives you a rough sense. But it also gives you research back tips and feedback. The short answer to your question is that what keeps all of us from becoming extremely unhealthy is our ability to feel comfortable uh, turning to others when we are in need, when we want comfort, when we want care, being open about that, being open about those vulnerabilities, and to test out whether or not we can trust people can be there. That's In the research, that's called secure attachment. Hmm. Narcissists are not securely attached particularly the disordered kind. So what's amazing is that it's both our capacity to be genuinely connected in that way that gives us the healthy narcissism, the slight feeling of feeling special, the rose-colored glasses, and also keeps us from becoming extraordinarily arrogant. Hmm. Jeez. But I mean, but that's something that there's a lot of learning out right now on this, on attachment disorders, right? And secure attachment. Mm-hmm. And, and that's important as a parent to make sure that you are present for your children and safe so that they can securely attach. Absolutely. Otherwise, we, our, we create our, more. Right. That's our best protection against uh, grooming our children to become extremely narcissistic. There's yeah. clear research on that. But they may children become president, though, Craig. If they're a narcissist, if they're a narcissist, there's a shot they'll be the president of the United States. That's true. It's a, <laughs> we want it to. Be, we want them to load higher on the healthy. That's pieces true. Of it. <laughs> yeah, focus on the healthy side of narcissism. <laughs> right. Well, Doctor Craig Malkin, we appreciate you. Great insight. And uh, again, we'll send everyone to the website drcraigmalkin.com and also the other website, uh, narcissism test.com. Um, excellent stuff. And go check out the book, Rethinking Narcissism: The Bad and Surprising Good About Feeling Special. If uh, if you feel like you may be on on the on the edge here when it comes to narcissism, folks, it's us. We're the voters, right? We are the ones that are giving the feedback. We're the ones laughing at the bully jokes. We're the ones, you know, having the black or white thinking too. So be careful what you're trying to perpetuate: an open person or a closed, self-loving, self-serving person. Watch out, folks. It's your vote that will matter. We're going to take a break, come back, do a little Coach's Corner, give you some more insight and tools right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend. This is the Coach's Corner. Dr. Matt here. You know, uh, I get to work with couples, and um, a lot of times that's what I hear. I hear a lot of these very issues that Dr. Malkin was talking about. You know, people that won't back down, people that won't apologize. And when you think about it, it really is about 
their ability to feel secure that you'll accept them. And so they end up fighting for, they end up fighting uh, to be right because if they're wrong, you, they're afraid you'll reject them. And this attachment stuff we talk about on the show a lot, it seems like, because it really is becoming one of the great dividers in our relationships and our ability to reach and connect to other people. If I'm not securely attached, then I will tend to become a detached person. I'll tend to pull away from you. I don't need you, which would make some of those other uh, what Dr. Malkin was calling the three E's much easier for me to do, to exploit you to be entitled and to have my empathy towards you impaired. If if I was raised in a home where, you know, my parents divorced and left me and, and I wasn't taken care of and cared for to the degree I wanted to be or needed to be, to be healthy, um, I guess you could just, I don't know, be, you know, hate me and frustrated by me and, and think I'm a jerk but if that happened when I'm a kid, it's going to make me somebody that doesn't re- relate and connect and I'm not going to be real with people. It doesn't mean I couldn't lead a company. I can still lead a company. It's just I don't necessarily need people because it's not about the people. It's about me. The people don't matter to me. It's also possible that these people could – Become president of the United States. And you're the one that is in the voter booth, right? You're the one that stands there and marks, yes, this is going to be my leader. Yes, this is the one that's going to be my governor, my politician. So let's go through, again, the do's and the don'ts from Dr. Craig Malkin's um, open letter to U.S. voters. Number one, do applaud careful reflection. Be open to a presidential candidate that is reflective and um, somebody that is that is open to learning and is willing to listen and hear new things. So many of these candidates go out on their listening tour and they might be trying to impress you to believe that they're going to listen. But you can tell if people are listening because they're open. They're, they're actually trying to be influenced by what someone else is saying. I can still think you're absolutely wrong politically. I can still have a complete uh, belief in my heart that what you're saying or doing is wrong, but I can still be open and hear what you're saying. And what's powerful about that is instead of me having to beat you down and embarrass you and hurt you and harm you, I could just let your ideas come out and your ideas will either sink you or elevate you. Think about it. In a great debate, it's the ideas that should win, not the manipulation of the debater. It's the ideas should be able to, to uh, move to the top. So do, uh, do applaud a leader that's careful and reflective. Don't applaud insults. If your politician or your candidate is insulting everybody, don't applaud that. That is a sign of emotional abuse. You wouldn't take it on the playground, so don't take it in Washington. Do applaud when they show feelings and their willingness to be emotionally moved by something. I mean, can you imagine what some of these candidates or the president would have to do going into Walter Reed Hospital in uh, D.C. and trying to deal and connect with people that have just been injured in war? 
that should move you. Writing a letter every day, which I think is what President Obama does to these people that write into him, he, he answers letters every day. Handwritten letters to people because he wants to be able to stay connected on that level. So don't applaud insults. Do applaud feelings. We want our president to be a feeler. Well, yeah, but he's going to blow up the world. You don't want the man that's going to blow up the world that has the nuclear weapons to be a feeler. Sure you do. You do. He's not going to reactively go grab the, you know, the magic suitcase and blow up the world. He is going to or she is going to have to feel, is this the right decision? Uh, The fourth rule he gives us, don't applaud manipulation. People that are impaired with, with a lack of empathy or people that feel entitled to be the next president or people that are used to exploiting others for their benefit and their gain, they will manipulate you. So if you see manipulation going on, I'd avoid it. I would not elect that person. Do applaud collaborative behavior. What I would love you to go think about is when you think of all of the candidates, which of those candidates do you see has the ability to actually be collaborative with the other party? Who has done it? Who talks about doing it right now? Very few, if any, of the candidates right now are collaborative. Where, where do you see it happening? Uh, don't applaud black and white thinking we talked about. Watch out when they're too black and white. And you see it on every discussion that goes on. If you're too black and white and most of the world ends up being gray, again, it doesn't mean you can't have your own value system. You should. You do need to have your own value system. But part of your value system should be able to listen and understand and hear what others are saying, even if you don't agree with it. That's a little bit of the gray area. And if most of the world is gray, you're going to have to be more than just black or white. Yes or no, up or down, good or bad. Uh, Number seven, do applaud apologies. I would go look and ask how many uh, sincere apologies have you heard from candidates? And if any candidate that can't sincerely apologize, I'd turn the other way. Don't applaud evasiveness. Anybody that's incredibly vague in their answers or glib or shallow, be careful, especially, by the way, if they're highly extroverted. A really extroverted, strong, social person can be highly evasive. All you need to do is go watch one press hearing with the the press secretary of the president of the United States, and it doesn't matter what president it is, you see a ton of evasiveness. They just are dancing and shucking and jiving the entire time. So be careful of evasiveness. And the last rule about dealing with uh a narcissist, especially in our political world, is do applaud curiosity. Who's asking the questions? Who wants to know? Who's interested? Which of your candidates are most interested in getting in there and learning and figuring out what's going on? Who's doing it right now? Questions aren't bad, right? Just the beginning of getting us somewhere. So, folks, we've got to take it seriously. We've got to be the change. And it's enough. You can just be as mad as you want at all these candidates. But in reality, you're the voter. I'd be, I actually get more frustrated with, the, with my fellow voters than I do the candidates. How do we keep promoting certain people? And how do we not see the values of other people? 
Interesting stuff. Anyway, go check out the article on Psychology Today, a psychologist's open letter to U.S. voters. Interesting stuff from Dr. Craig Malkin. We are going to take a break, my friends. Uh, We've got more. Next hour, more tools, more information to help you build a healthier, happier, a lasting life, one you can be proud of. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is... uh, this is the show, folks, where you're going to get the information you need to live a healthier, happier life, to live longer, love stronger. Today, we're going to be talking about, I believe, a leadership topic. It's also an interpersonal relationship kind of topic about your racial racial bias. Do you believe you are biased racially? I'm going to bet you are. And without even knowing it, you may even have an ignorance to your bias, not even knowing you're biased. You're just probably a really good person, but you have some inherent bias towards maybe races, but genders even, you know, sexual identity, whatever it is. So we're going to be speaking with Liz Redford about uh, some of the great work she has been doing on that and how to become more aware and responsible when it comes to your own biases. And hmm, wouldn't that be a weird world if we could just increase awareness a little bit? That's the goal on the show today. We'll be getting to that in just a few minutes with uh, Liz Redford. And um, we'll also, of course, be doing the headlines in a few moments. But honestly, it's World Vegetarian Day. Mm. So happy World Vegetarian Day. Could you be a veg? Are you a vegetarian? I'm not a vegetarian. I wish I had the discipline Ability to be a vegetarian? Yeah. It's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> that is a trap. It's I don't know. Where do they get, where do they get their protein Nuts. as a vegetarian? I don't know. Nuts, I guess. Yeah? Beans. Lent. Tofu. Tofu. Ooh, yuck. Mm. You don't like tofu. I don't. You're not a tofu guy. If I could fry it, though, and put it mm. on a hamburger. There you go. I bet it tastes really good. So it's World Vegetarian Day. It really is. It's a moral and a dietary choice. It's a tough It's a tough life. That would be tough. Especially, I, I mean, it's probably only tough until you get used to it, right? Mm-hmm. Today's also Poetry Day. In a few minutes, Ben will be reciting some poetry. Roses are red. Yeah. We're Lives going to. Blue. Yeah. Ben, have you got your poem ready for Poetry Day? Call it the heart of darkness. Okay. Ooh. Are you ready to go now? Um, how about in a couple of minutes? Okay. Why don't you get ready? And uh, yeah. I, and by the way, I love the beret. He's wearing the beret mm-hmm. today for Poetry Day. Oh. Which Much I, more official. It's fantastic. Yes. Very nice. Today is also CD Player Day. Not what? S-E-E-D-Y, but No, not CD. CD <laughs> Player Day. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you played a CD? Boy, it's been forever. And isn't that weird? Yeah. It's funny to think even cars still come with CDs because I don't yeah. know. Most people, I think, have Are it on sure their phone. Are you sure they're not DVDs? Uh, a car I was looking at comes with a DVD <laughs> player. Isn't that weird? But you Is can, that for the kids in the back, you it's, mean? It's actually it, it's a DVD player. You can watch it if your car is parked. Oh, okay. Yeah, once you start moving, it doesn't go. Yeah, yeah. I okay. tried. Huh. 
I just kept I kept so just throwing it in the park. So you and your wife just go to Lover's Lane and, mm-hmm. and you can just watch the yeah, video there? Yeah, watch a movie there. Okay, good. Just watch, and what else would you do there? <laughs> Except watch a movie. Uh, so it's also National Homemade Cookies Day. Mm. Mm, that one I like. Yeah. That's a good day. What kind of cookie? I'll take any cookie. I'm serious. I'll, I love peanut butter cookies. Are you a peanut yeah, butter I cookie love, guy? I do, I do. I love peanut butter that cookies. Is a, that's a good mm, cookie. Yeah. Ben, uh-oh, Ben's grabbing the mic. Yeah, Ben? I used to make like 400 dozen cookies a day. Really? For my job because I worked at BYU Bakery. Really? So I know how uh, to I'm make. I'm guessing yours are co- come with macadamia nuts, right? Um, I I can make arrangements for, for macadamia nuts. Why don't you Why don't you make us some cookies for the show? Hmm. Come that, on. I mean, it seems like the least you could do. I mean. Or the BYU mint brownies. Those are oh, good. Oh, those are good. Too. I can do anything for compensation. <laughs> sure. That's you're getting a you have a job. You're here every day and they're they're compensating. They're paying you. And while you're at it, you know, I mean, just so you have something to do, make us some cookies. Anyway. I'll think about it. You still working on your poem for Poetry Day? Yeah, I'll have it by next segment. Okay, great. Next segment. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, his poem. Did you hear about this passenger? Holy cow. It makes you not want to fly anymore. This guy at 30,000 feet tried to open the airplane door. <gasps> I know. It's crazy. He thought it was the bathroom. No way. He did. Uh, excuse me, miss. I can't get the bathroom door open. Oh. He went and grabbed that silver bar. Attendant? Well, I think she was probably in the bathroom. I don't know. They eventually got him. Oh, wow. James Gray was fined $675 after the incident. On an Ed- Edinburgh to Amsterdam flight, he was told he can't fly on that airline for five years. Oh, come on! I know. Wow, that's stiff. He also cannot use a lavatory for 10 years. <laughs> Um, uh, there's a big difference between the bathroom and the exit door. Excuse me, um, this bathroom door doesn't open. Uh, he ended up, it was a misunderstanding, he said. I tried to explain. It was a simple mistake. What? What? Can you not make one mistake on an airplane? Yeah, you can, James, but it'll kill you. The police came and they arrested him. He said, you know what? They weren't very friendly. The police... We're not friendly. I'm going to bet he was inebriated. I'm guessing that would have part. Do you want to bet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Boy, that first step into the bathroom, though, is a, a doozy. A doozy. <laughs> a doozy. Anyway, so be careful oh, out there. Oh, yeah. When you're getting on an airplane, don't just identify where the exits are and the exit rows. Always know which door is the bathroom door and which door is not. That's crucial. You and make... if it says, you know, vacate, vacant or? Yeah. Right. What's the other word? If it says life raft will inflate the minute you open this, you're not going in the bathroom. Uh, People. People. Come on. Come on. It's the WC, the water closet. That's right. That's right. So that's uh, that's just a little tip from the town, Matt Townsend Show. Let's now mm-hmm. go to the news with Kathy Aiken. Good morning, everyone. Hurricane Joaquin intensified today to a Category 3 with winds up to 120 miles per hour. It's hammering the central Bahamas. Meteorologists aren't certain the hurricane will hit the U.S., but officials from the Carolinas to New England are on alert. Severe weather and heavy flooding are possible on the East Coast through the weekend. 
The government is up and running. Congress passing a temporary spending measure last night, and President Obama, Obama signed it. That means the government will continue to run at least through December 11th. For the second straight day, Russia continued its airstrikes inside Syria. Russia is defending the action, saying it's helping President Bashar al-Assad in the fight against ISIS. However, U.S. Secretary of Defense Ash Carter said the strikes don't appear to be targeting areas held by ISIS forces, but rather those backed by the CIA. The strikes are also raising concerns over how the Cold War rivals can share airspace as the two nations run separate attacks inside Syria. Due to the unrest, Syrian refugees continue to look for a better life in Europe as well as the United States. GOP presidential candidate Donald Trump weighed in on the Syrian refugee crisis last night. We're going to take in 200,000 Syrians or wherever they come from. We have no idea. There's no identification. There's no anything. If I win, they're going back. They're going back. I'm telling you, they're going back. Trump made those remarks at a rally in New Hampshire last night. Vice President Joe Biden will reportedly take even longer to decide whether or not he'll jump into the Democratic presidential race. Biden's associates say he's not preparing for his party's first debate on October 13th and is not expected to participate. They say Biden won't likely announce his plans until later in October. Dozens of U.S. Secret Service employees allegedly access, accessed a job application by U.S. Congressman Jason Chaffetz trying to embarrass him. The information was leaked after Chaffetz began an investigation into scandals inside the agency. The more I learned about the Secret Service, the more I've recognized there's a deep-seated cultural problem. If, if they're doing this to me, who knows what else they're doing? It, it really is scary. The application was for a job with the Secret Service 12 years ago. The information was viewed by at least 45 employees and may be a criminal violation under the U.S. Privacy Act. Three more women have come forward accusing Bill Cosby of sexual assault decades ago. The allegations come a week before the 78-year-old comedian is scheduled to give a sworn deposition in a separate sexual assault case. Five University of Alabama fraternity members were arrested on hazing charges yesterday. The five were members of the five, uh, Phi Gamma Delta fraternity, and they're being held on $1,000 bond at the Tuscaloosa County Jail after allegedly making pledges stand in buckets of ice and salt, which caused burning to the pledge's feet. The manhunt continues for a Louisiana inmate who was accidentally released from prison last week. The 32-year-old African-American male was serving a 40-year sentence at the Dixon Correctional Institute in Jackson. He's 5 feet 10 inches tall and 190 pounds. He has a tattoo on his left arm that reads, Timed Up. A $5,000 reward is being offered for information leading to the man's capture. And don't mess with a football team in Duluth, Minnesota. That's Uh because a nun has found a higher calling. Sister Lisa Maurer is an assistant coach with the College of St. Scholastica. Near the college is a convent where 70 sisters live out their special vocation, all of them but Sister Lisa. She coached football in high school before becoming a nun three years ago. (laughs) And when she went outside the convent and saw the team practicing, the call was just too strong. Head coach Kurt Rambler saw she knew the game and hired her, and last year the team went 10-1. and It's pretty good. Yeah, on game day, Sister Lisa says the prayer, and Coach Rambler says his coaches don't swear like they used to. Sister <laughs> Lisa works with the practice squad and the kickers. So how do you solve a problem like Lisa? How do you solve the problem? You know what you do? Can't you, you see her? You stay away. You stay away from them. Uh-huh. You know what, though? She, can't you see her grabbing a guy by yeah. the face mask and saying, I want you to get in there <laughs> and rip him a new one? Sister Lisa. 
Wow, sister, I didn't know you that. Could is do that is amazing. <laughs> I love it, sister Lisa. Kill him. Yeah, hey, get him. Hit him. Yeah. Hit him. Not sure I want to see it. 70, or the other 69, I should say, come and uh, watch the games. Yeah. Oh, how great. But yeah, yeah. I think it's a. I think it's a trick to just increase attendance. That could be because now you've got the other sixty nine sisters coming to see the game. Uh huh. So you you have one on the staff and sixty nine attend. <laughs> yeah, and it makes the others feel guilty if they don't attend. That's where right. so you know they need to get their attendance. Maybe church attendance. We oh. want to help with the church attendance. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Wouldn't you love to just have have her mic'd up so you could like <laughs> NFL <laughs> films have her mic'd up so yeah. you could hear? <laughs> now now guys. Be careful. God loves you. I'm praying for you. <laughs> Don't get injured. Remember who you, who you are, are out there. <laughs> that is fantastic. And they're winning. Yes. So it's they working. Were 10 and 1 last, last yeah. year. So, yeah. yeah, it is working. Well, if you've got God on your side, you're going to win. You're going to win. Yeah. And that the men don't swear as much. I mean, football just really is yeah. kind of gets the most of guys. You know that salty language. It's funny. It, it's, but some, but we also there's kind of a bad sometimes impression of nuns like that they're strict and. But I wonder if she's got that or is she nice and kind and. I mean, they're all nice and kind. Yeah, interesting. Let's mic her. Let's do it. Let's mic her up. NFL films. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, that's that. Maybe the NFL needs that. Every team ought to get. Maybe the Saints, New Orleans. Come on, get Sister Lisa on your side. Uh, good stuff. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Liz Redford will be joining us, and um, Liz is in uh, her getting a PhD at uh, the University of Florida, and she is studying some pretty interesting work in social psychology. As she's doing that, she's learning about your racially biased tendencies and your awareness of them. And folks, just because you're not aware of your, your biases or your beliefs about other people, it doesn't absolve you from what you're doing. We're going to be talking about awareness and morality. What you're aware of and not aware of does not necessarily mean you're, you're, um, you're not being immoral. You're, you're being immoral just simply because you don't know you're biased. We'll talk about it. It's a big deal because I think most of us, honestly, we think we're not biased. And yet I believe most of us have some very deep-seated biases. So stick with us, folks. Interesting discussion with Liz Redford after the break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you ever been pulled over by a police officer... But let off the hook once he realizes that you're out of state and you didn't know that specific state law. Has that ever happened to you? Or have you been pulled over and you still got a ticket, but you're like, I didn't even know that was the law. Well, apparently, you know, we make mistakes in life, right? And unintentionally or not, we sometimes believe if it was an unintentional issue, mistake, we shouldn't be held accountable to it. We believe if we're not aware of what we were doing, we're innocent, right? Well, according to our next guest, Liz Redford, who's a social psychology graduate student at the University of Florida, she says, typically when a consequence is unexpected, the perpetrator is considered less at fault. 
But she says when it comes to racial bias, however, participants assigned responsibility regardless of awareness. So if you're racially biased and you don't even know it, you're still going to be judged as a racist or as being racially biased. And she's here today to talk to us about awareness and our and our biases and how we can go about, I guess, understanding what we think, how we think, and and maybe taking a little stronger stand in owning some of our thinking. Again, uh, Liz Redford, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me on the show. You bet. And to me, this is a it's it's a complicated topic to to just to kind of explain. But talk about your research when it comes to you know being moral, whether we're aware or not. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I want to make really clear is there are a couple types of awareness um, that I looked at in the studies yeah. that we did. Um, first of all, you can be aware or not that you have this kind of um, what we call implicit automatic gut-level negative reaction towards something or someone. So you can be aware and not of having that kind of reaction. But you could also be aware or unaware that this is affecting your behavior, right? Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, you can go online and take the implicit attitude test. In fact, tell us um, where that is. That's a, that's a Project right. Implicit, right? Mm-hmm. Project. Yeah, you can Google that really easily. Yeah. Um, so you can go online and take this test, but maybe you, you aren't unaware in a given situation that it's affecting your behavior. Um, you might have one type of awareness, but not the other. And this is the special case um, that we were interested in, because we think that that maybe characterizes a lot of people in the real world. Yeah. Um, and so the other thing that I want to clarify is that uh, the judgments we looked at were about moral responsibility. So we didn't really ask participants, is this person a racist, mm-hmm. um, or to judge what the person's true attitudes were. It was more like, are they morally responsible for discriminating based on how aware they are? Okay. Yeah. And, and you um, found, what did you find? So we found that, well, what we expected was that a person who knows they have bias and who knows it's affecting their behavior will be most morally responsible but the people will be a little bit more lenient if that person knows they have bias but doesn't know it will affect their behavior. Yeah. So we thought that ignorance of the behavioral influence or not knowing it would affect your behavior would be um, kind of free you from blame a little right. bit. Right. We give you the but benefit of the true. doubt. Yeah. Right. But this wasn't true. Um, and this was really surprising because if you think about, um, like you said in your example, um, we're, we're often expected to know things. So mm-hmm. if you think about... Um, um, when most of us would blame someone who fails to check their mirrors right before they back into our car, even though they don't know. Right. Um, so in a sense, they kind of certain people at certain times, we think, have obligations to know something. And this is kind of what we found in our study. When the person wasn't freed from blame, even though they didn't know, their bias would affect their behavior. Interesting. Is it? And is it different than – is there a different result with when it's just kind of a racial bias – Versus when it's when it is backing in to somebody not, not that wouldn't be racially driven or causal. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So we didn't test um, any scenarios that weren't about racial bias. Hmm. We we're particularly interested in this um, because it struck me as someone who worked with Project Implicit um, that what people find really compelling about implicit racial bias is what it says about their moral status. Yeah. Um, so we were yeah we were pretty much interested in implicit racial bias. And really, though, we don't – it's funny because so, – so we're being judged as being less moral in a way 
um, if we right. if by not even if we are not aware, that is so that's so interesting. Is is the assumption that we should be aware? Or is the assumption that that we that yeah we actually know we're biased? Um, so what we're interpreting our results to mean, and the question we asked was about the should. What should we be expected to know? Hmm. Um, so let me use an example from yeah. news recently. So um, you might have seen that recently this uh, peanut executive knowingly sent out these peanuts um, that were infected with salmonella. Right. Yeah, nine people died. He gets twenty-eight years in jail. That story um, referred to a different peanut CEO who didn't know that his peanuts were infected with salmonella. He got a misdemeanor and a fine. Interesting. Right. So normally, um, less awareness and less knowledge leads to less blame. Right. Unless you think that that second peanut executive should have known. Yeah. Should have known that his peanuts had salmonella. And then you might be inclined to blame him much more. And that's what our studies are about. And After we did the first study and we found that there was no difference in blame between behavioral knowledge and not, we thought maybe people think that if you know you have racial bias, you ought to know, or you should know, or you have an obligation or duty to know that it'll affect your discriminatory behavior. Hmm. And that's implicit bias. That's if your gut, if you really are biased racially and you know it. But the majority, I would assume, don't even know, they may not even... Because awareness is a really big problem, right, in the world. What are we truly aware of and not? I mean, a lot of our thoughts are subconscious. So that a subconscious thought, is that that's not implicit, right? Um, well, implicit bias is definitely the focus of what we were looking at. Um, so when we say implicit, um, it can be unconscious. That's not usually a word researchers use. It's often a word that the, the media uses. Yeah. There's some evidence to show that in some situations people can be aware of this kind of what we prefer to call like a gut feeling uh-huh. um, or a kind of sense of automatic negative reaction. Um, so it can be unconscious, and that's a word the media tends to use, which is why in this study we were interested in unawareness or kind of something not being available to consciousness because we wanted to know what are the effects of explaining in this way. Right. Well, and so what I'm hearing is we have a responsibility, especially when it comes to bias— um, and racial bias that you you a probably need to become as aware as you can as a human being, but you also you are going to be judged critically for acting and behaving on your bias. Right. Yeah. And Whether you know or not. We, right. And these are things we can't necessarily know if what someone's aware of in any given right. situation. Right. Um, but theoretically, were we to know, um, the results suggest that that's how a person would react. Hmm. Um, now, now, do I think something is now? Do I think a person is morally responsible, or actual whether they actually are is a whole other question. Yeah, right. Um, but our participants seem to think this way. Um, what? When? Who was your study group? Who? What was the the audience that you studied? Um, so we studied participants at Project Implicit. There's a volunteer research pool which actually anyone can join. Um, people get randomly assigned to studies out of a pool of about 10 other studies at a time. And this is actually great because it's more representative than many other psychology studies, which usually use uh, college undergraduates in psychology, mm-hmm. right? So the college sophomore problem is a big problem in psychological studies. Yeah. So we tend to get an average age of about um, 33 to 35, more racial diversity, um, 
and a good mix of males and females. Is it? It's interesting too, though, because if the sampling comes from Project Implicit, this might also be a sample group that's also maybe just more inherently aware. They're more into being aware because they've gone on. They've probably participated in the in the the online assessments and the tools. Are they more? Are they more of an aware audience when it comes to bias, racial bias? That's a great question because we also know from other studies that people um, kind of tend to use their own motivations or knowledge when right. judging others. Yeah, um, which is why we replicated the study on Amazon Mechanical Turk, which is kind of an online marketplace where you can recruit um, participants and workers. To okay, yeah. So you you used another tool and found the same results. Mm-hmm. Same results. Interesting. So, right. so help us understand how this applies to Joe Blow. So if I'm at work right. and I have an implicit bias towards some ethnic group, um, if I express and act on that bias, people are going to judge me as if I knew even if I didn't know I had a bias. They're going okay. to think I'm biased. Okay, yeah, so there is a difference. People actually are more lenient if you don't know you have the bias at all. Yeah. Where we don't see a difference is if you don't know it'll affect your behavior. Yeah, and then you'll be held just as responsible as if you did. But you're right that this has some implications for leading a moral life. Right. Um, Some implications that we should think about what we don't know, which is kind of counterintuitive. Um, We should think about what we ought to know. So, for example, should we... Um, be aware of where our clothing comes from and whether it's sweatshops. Should we know how the animals we eat are treated? And these same kind of questions, according to our studies, might apply to implicit racial bias. Mm. There are plenty of studies showing that implicit bias is related to decision-making in courts, workplace hiring, hospital decision-making, and like you said, everyday interactions. Something like the amount of eye eye contact you make or friendliness is related to um, implicit racial bias. Wow. So, I mean, that's a, that's a, and and you're, you've only studied it on implicit racial bias, but you haven't necessarily studied it on gender bias. Would you assume it's the same? um, That's a great question. So what it seems to boil down to for our participants is that moral responsibility can be based on your foresight of your discrimination, or it can be based on your awareness. But what it might be based more on is your obligation to be aware of these kind of behavioral outcomes. So to the extent that they think you ought to know, then they'll think you're morally responsible. And that Hmm. should apply to everything from gender bias to racial bias um, to these, you know, peanut executive examples that I brought up. So really a lot of what this is about is – to to be perceived as uh, I guess more morally healthy and strong, you have to know your you have to know your biases. You have to try to understand if you have a bias implicit, and you have to understand that it will probably impact your behaviors. And and actually search it out, figure it out, start thinking. I mean, as I listen to the news. Um, you you hear story after story after story that basically has an underlying bias, and a lot of us just might automatically go with the gut reaction and say, "Yeah, they should be kicked out of here." Um, but in reality, we need to be evaluating actively our moral kind of belief system, our bias system, and how it impacts our activity. Yeah, and this is something that um, philosophers have also said for a while, which is that people have a responsibility to kind of. Um, manage their mental states, to be in control of 
their intentions and be in control of what they're aware of. Hmm. So again, using the driver example, you might not know that the person's car is behind you. You might not check your mirrors, but you have a responsibility to know some things. Yeah. There's some things that other people think that you're responsible for knowing. And if you don't, if you fail to, um, then you're going to be blamed more. That's interesting. And it's not enough to just claim you didn't know. You're still going to be blamed more. You're still going to be, you know, seen as biased. It could impact you at jobs, in your work. It could impact in your promotions. Yeah, and and to some extent, we almost expect that it probably does. So a lot of Americans um, on the IAT, which millions of people have taken now, the implicit association test, um, many Americans show implicit racial bias. So we might expect these sort of um, what might seem like small effects like friendliness and, and eye contact to multiply kind of across people and across lifetimes even to result in these kind of big effects that no one's really taking responsibility for. Hmm. Liz, is it, is, it seems like bias is the norm. And are, is there a point here where we're fighting against, not fighting against it, but we're, we're all biased and it seems like that's part of our humanity is to create a bias that would protect you and make you, you know, live. Yeah, so, so the idea that evolution gives us, um, that it legitimates racial bias is not necessarily a good or, or helpful explanation. Um, the idea that something's natural, like categorizing people as natural, categorizing people as natural is not necessarily super helpful um, for con- confronting um, certain kinds of biases. There are other things that are unnatural that we think are great, like um, I'm wearing glasses right now. We have hospitals. Things yeah. like that are great. Um, so it's kind of a, up to us to decide, regardless of the way things may be, how yeah. do we want them to be and how can we move towards that? Do, do you sense, Liz, that there's a day that you could have a humanity that has no bias? Because it, it just seems like then the bias is still pro-humanity. <laughs> Versus animal, you know, I, I wonder because we, we just had a guy on the show the other day yesterday from the University of Texas talking about these microaggressions. Right. And as we've right. be, as we've as we've been conquering a little bit on the macro scale of racism and bias, we're now breaking into more microaggressions where everyone is um, everyone now has their independent individual bias. But I, I don't know. I just sit there and I wonder, how can I ever. I mean, I, I can remain open. I can remain trying to understand and not understanding. Is there a point, do you sense, that humanity can actually be bias-free? That's a great question, and it involves a couple points, um, one of which is the word bias. Um, so when we say implicit bias, we generally use it to refer um, kind of in the way that you'd use the word stereotyping or discrimination yeah. against a group or people in groups based on just their group membership, not based on their behavior, personalities, etc. Um, but an implicit attitude is just a kind of a positive or negative feeling. And we have these all the time, and they're not bad. Right. I hope you have an implicit attitude, for example, towards your spouse, your kids, etc. You have this gut um, automatic reaction that they're positive, and yeah. that's totally fine. So we'll always have implicit attitudes. But implicit biases based on group membership, hmm. um, there are certainly people who get scores on the IAT indicating that they don't prefer black to white or vice versa. 
So there are individuals who don't show these preferences. And you can imagine that people when they're born, for example, don't show these preferences. Yeah. So is it possible for people to be unbiased? Yes, I think so. And there are also interventions being developed for people who have biases to try to work on um, being less biased. Mm. Because, I mean, it's I think that's I think that's powerful, too, when you think about because uh, it is it's there's race, gender, sexual orientation, but even um, religion. Right. So it, there's a bias towards a person of a religion or a certain faith or a certain belief set. So it's it's a healthy project to sit there and think, how can we how can we get rid of a bias based on just a group membership and even you know, learn to have a less of just an automatic gut reaction about it and instead see see people from a neutral state. Right. Um, and if your takeaway from this is um, how can I limit the influence of these biases on my decisions, yeah. then absolutely being vigilant is one of those ways. Um, we know that people have explicit, that is, you know, consciously endorsed attitudes, the kind that when you say, I like something, that's your explicit attitude. Mm-hmm. We know that people have those and implicit attitudes. Sometimes they match, sometimes not. But we know that people use their implicit attitudes more under stress or when they rely on their intuition. So if you don't let yourself do that, you might be more likely to use your conscious, um, kind of self-reported out loud, consciously endorsed explicit attitudes to make decisions. And you might rely less on your implicit biases. Yeah. And that, that's where you be vigilant. Like go in, think about your thinking. That's that's right. an int- think about your thinking and how your thinking leads to your your choices, your actions. I mean, I haven't even thought about it. Even your eye contact or your or other thing. I mean, I've I've uh, worked with some Native Americans, and I do these activities with couples where they're supposed to look into each other's eyes, and I tried to do that at a Navajo Indian Nation tribal meeting, and they looked at me like, "Oh yeah, we don't do that." It's and I thought yeah. I thought, wow, I had no clue. That another culture couldn't just stare into their partner's eyes. It was yeah, so fascinating to me. Yeah, they have different rules for what kind mm-hmm. of eye contact are acceptable. Um, in mainstream America, we generally um, prefer a certain amount of eye contact. Yeah. I read a study recently that said maybe 60%. Um, but the point is that people like to be treated a certain way. And other studies have shown that when white people interact with black people, um, the black people might go away with less of a good impression than the white people think they gave because they can pick up on these cues, like hmm. less eye contact, less friendliness. Um, and again, these these small effects can stack up over time. Yeah. So by, by making an effort to be objective and kind of, and this might be new to some people, saying no to the colorblind label. Because mm-hmm. if you're colorblind, you're basically saying, I refuse to be aware of differences between people and those differences that might influence my behavior towards them. So we, you, we should be aware and, and be evaluating and become aware and notice how, it, how we respond to it and do what we can to respond healthier. Right. Instead of being colorblind, yeah. acknowledging differences, routinely checking thoughts for potential biases based on those differences is the only way that someone's going to change their behavior. I love that. And, it's, and that honestly to me is moral, right? That, that's, that's becoming a more moral person. You're now – you're trying to improve something that you may not have even paid attention to before and make other people feel better and healthier. 
it seems that way, yeah. It's powerful. Man, Liz Redford, great stuff. Again, you can find out more about uh, if you go to – just go look up Project Implicit. It's on. It's at Harvard University, and you can go take the Project Implicit Social Attitudes Test, uh, a lot of other great stuff there. You can also find more from Liz at her website, lizredford.weebly.com. And um, powerful tools, folks, starting to own your own mind, your own biases, your own, your own activity that comes from your thinking. Interesting stuff. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. When we come back, by the way, we'll be talking about... A path to retirement. If you're going to retire, I'm going to give you four steps you want to make sure you're taken care of before you uh, pull the plug on your employment. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. And this is the Coach's Corner, a chance for me to just uh, give you some of my latest uh, information that I use to coach couples, people, families, friends, you name it. Today, I'm talking about uh, the path to purposeful retirement. Any of you ready to retire? Just counting down the days. I am. I've got 44 more days. And then I'm out of here. I get my watch, and I'm I'm gone So if you're planning to retire, you need to have a path, is what I teach. And a path, I basically give four different steps that make up an acronym called PATH to purposeful retirement. It is not enough, folks, to just be done because uh, the irony of being in the tension of going to work every day is it actually, in many regards, is a very, very healthy helpful, motivating, purposeful thing for you. And the minute you get rid of that driver, you might actually start having a come apart in your life. I've seen many of my clients so excited for retirement. And the minute they pulled the plug, they created a big air bubble in their pipeline of life. And then they went into a drought where they weren't getting satisfaction. They didn't have purpose. They didn't have passion. They weren't being active. They fall. They fell out of shape. They got into bad habits. They weren't accomplishing certain things. And so that's what we're trying to do is make sure if you're going to go forward to retirement, man, good on you. Congratulations. That's super cool. But let me give you four basic things you need to make sure you're focusing on for PATH. The PATH to your purposeful retirement. First, you got to have purpose and passion, right? That's the P of path. Purpose and passion, simply, I'm a big believer that if you don't have purpose, you will perish. If you don't have something in your life that drives you, that pushes you, that stretches you, that you're passionate about, you are going to pay for it. That passion and that purpose makes it so you can be driven to keep going in life. You have to have some attractor, something you are attracted to that you're wanting and that drives you. So before you pull the plug on your job, which, by the way, a lot of times that's what your job's been fulfilling for you. By the way, a lot of us, too, have fallen out of love with our job and we don't feel fulfilled. 
probably because we lost our purpose. We lost our passion. So before you retire, make sure that you have spent some time identifying your purpose in life. You still have 25, let's say 30 years, however long you're going to live. What is your purpose in life? And one way I suggest you do it is sit down and imagine what you want everyone to say at your 95th birthday. Your 90th birthday. What do you want everyone to say about your purpose? What do you want your kids to say? Your family, your coworkers, your friends, neighbors, everybody you will affiliate with and associate with through your retirement. What do you want them to say? And I'd write it all down. Find out what these people are going to say because inside of what you want these people to say about you, you're going to start to see your purpose. Man, he was so full of service. I will never forget when he retired how what an amazing grandfather he turned into. Great. That's so important to know. I will never forget what an empowering and incredible relationship he created with mom after retirement. What do you want these people to say about your life after you've retired? And start to identify it and write it down. Because if you know that you want to be an incredible grandpa, that's an important purpose to know about before you retire. If you want to know that you're going to be an incredible spouse, that's important to know. If you want to, these people to say, I love how grandpa, even after he quit, he never quit you know, changing lives. He never quit serving people. That's important to know. So reconnect to your purpose by doing that activity. Get it written out. Find your passion too. Before you end it and you're done with work, find your passion. A lot of times in companies, they have activities, they have classes you can go to, they have resources, they have training, they have development tools online, they have access to information that you should be using to find out what your passions are. What hobbies are you going to continue doing in your life when you retire? What hobbies do you want to start doing? If you read a book, a magazine, or watch a movie about anything in the world, if you could go do that anytime, what topic would you go choose to watch? World War II war movies? Is that what you want to watch? Okay, that could be a passion. It's important you know what your passions are. What activities do you do? And when you're doing them, time just flies by. So many people say, yeah, when I retire, I'm going to really go, I'm going to go look up my ancestors. I'm going to go find out about my, you know, my parents, that, my great, great, great grandparents that came to America. I'm going to go research all of that. Great. If it's not a passion, you're really not going to do that. And if you're not already doing it right now while you have a free second and going to work, you probably aren't going to do it when you're done. So don't create an illusion about what your purpose and your passions are because guess what? If it's not real, you're going to stall. You're probably going to stall. And if you've ever uh, grew up learning how to drive a stick shift – Sometimes you just push too much gas and you pop the clutch too fast. Sometimes you don't push enough gas. You've got to figure out the proper balance of this. But before you pull the plug and before you move into retirement, make sure you're clear about your purpose for the next 25 years and your passions, what you love to do, and make sure you're working on them before you get started. Number two in PATH, the PATH to uh, Purposeful Retirement, is make sure you have activities and accomplishments. One of the crazy truths about work is it drives you every day to be active and to accomplish things. Don't forget Newton's first law of motion, that an object in motion will stay in motion, right? Unless it's otherwise acted upon. You are probably, because you go to work every day, fairly used to being active. 
the minute you quit, you are now acting upon that, and you might find yourself without momentum or without inertia. Be careful. Be careful. Make sure you are clear about what activities you're going to do, how you're going to choose your activities, how you're going to use your time. I'd start before you retire. I'd put together a plan for your time schedule, what you're going to do with your time, what you're not going to do, what, you will, what will be considered a busy life, right? And what is something you just don't want to get caught up doing. I would sit down with your kids and I'd talk to them about your retirement. What activities are you going to do? I will, we are totally excited to come babysit the kids, but we are not permanent babysitters. So as grandparents, we will be there easily once a week. We'd love to sit there and babysit the kids for you. And it's only going to be once a week. And there will be some weeks we won't do it. Be clear on your accomplishments. What is going to drive you to feel good about yourself? Because at work, a lot of times you get accolades that you aren't going to get when you're retired. And some people need that, right? So think about what we've talked about. You've got to have your purpose and your passion before you retire. You also need to be clear about what activities are going to fill your day up, how you're going to manage your time, and what accomplishments are going to drive you. What are your goals? I'd have a lot of goals set. I'd have a quarter goal, a half-year goal, and a full-year goal set before you ever pull the plug. Now, I know it sounds like, oh, well, I'm just trying to relax for crying out loud. Great. Make that an activity. But after two weeks of relaxing, it's going to just slowly slide into vegging. No, I'm not that kind of guy. Well, sure. You've never had since you were 18 years old. You have not had the chance, the luxury in life to just veg. But if you're retiring, you might. The T in path is to make sure you have the right team of people around you and togetherness. At work, when you're at work, you have a lot of people that are there. They're stimulating. They're fun. You can, you know, talk to you want to and go back to work when you, when you got to get busy and go get stuff done. But just as you have people around you there, I want to make sure that you have the right team around you of social support. Make sure your family are around you. Make sure they're very – you've created space and time for them. Make sure you have the right sense of um, togetherness. Make sure your family's on board with what your goals are. I'd also be really clear about some other things. I'd have somebody that you can talk to about, you know, your hobbies. Who's going to be on the hobby team? Who's going to be on the health team? We'll get to that in a few minutes. But I would have a lot of good people around you. What you might find out is you're so excited to just be alone for a while. But remember, the research shows being alone or feeling lonely, either one of those, it's like smoking 16 or 15 cigarettes a day on your health. Being alone is not the goal. I get it for a while. I'm somebody that loves to be alone, believe me. But at some point, you also need to look at other facets of sociability. For example, have friends, old and new friends. This might be a great chance to go back and find your old friends again. Have emotional team ready, maybe some therapists or some coaches that can help you if you sense you might be emotionally impacted by this. Have a spiritual team, church members, your pastor, your, your church leaders, an intellectual team, professional groups, book clubs, teachers, professors. Get back to school. And then um, also you might want to work on your togetherness as a couple. One of the big things I see couples fight a lot about is uh, ever since he came home, he's kind of taking over my life, she says. I used to love it when he'd go to work and now I don't even have my own identity anymore and now he's cooking the dinners and he's telling me how to clean the house. 
you might want to sit down with your spouse before you end up um, retiring and decide how much time do we really need to spend together? How much time is good enough for you? And have those discussions before you do it. Two other things, the H in PATH is health and happiness. If you don't have your health, it's going to feel like you didn't retire at all. So make sure before you leave, use your company resources, use your insurance, get all the testing you can, get a good bill of health, get a really good sense of what you should do, go build a good activity system, a plan, a diet, everything you can to make sure you're going to be healthy and strong. Take care of yourself. Get ready for another strong 25 years. And then last but not least, identify happiness. What is going to actually make you the happiest? Remember, you only need about $70,000 to, to feel a sense of happiness. It, happiness only correlates to up to about $70,000 in income. So money doesn't necessarily make you happier. So make sure you have the conversation. How am I going to know I'm happy in my retirement? What will that look like? And think about it. Talk about it with your spouse so that you know what you're working toward. Does it mean you're going to have your kids around you? Does it mean you're going to be serving the community more? What does happiness look like to you? Right? Fairly simple ideas. Purpose, passion, activities, accomplishment, team and togetherness, and last but not least, health and happiness. That's the path to a purposeful and healthy retirement. That's the Coach's Corner. We'll take a break, my friends. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back after the break. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, helping you get through this thing we call the human project. Every day, you're trying to build your own life, aren't you? And many trying to build and improve upon the lives of your children, your family, your spouse. That's what this show's about, to give you the tools, the information you need to grow healthier, happier lives Not just to bring you the news, we will bring you the news and a little twist on the news with the latest and greatest research that I think applies to you personally. Top of the morning to you and welcome to the show. Today, by the way, got a great guest that will be joining us. Arlene Pelican will be with us. She wrote a book with Gary Chapman. Gary Chapman's known for writing the book, The Five Love Languages. And uh, she and Gary, they wrote a book called Growing Up Social. Raising Relational Kids in a Screen-Driven World. She'll be joining us in just a few moments to talk about how to, how to help raise your kids in a social world, right? Instead of just keeping them on their computers, their cell phones. And man, uh, I have to talk about it. We could talk about what's going on, all the brouhaha going on in D.C. over uh, Kevin McCarthy's comments, but we're not going to go there. We're not even going to go there. We'll let... Kathy cover all the news, but have you heard this? Oh, this is crazy and a little bit creepy. In a new study out of the University of Oregon, researchers say they found that people are surrounded by a sort of cloud that is unique to them. A cloud. What are you doing there, Ben? Are you I'm, sniffing me? I'm smelling your cloud. 
Yeah, well, oh, go back no. to your side of the room, man. Uh, that is gross. Like a literal, like a cloud. Cloud. Do you where all your information? Do you is remember stored? in uh, Charlie Brown and the Peanuts character mm-hmm. um, B- uh, Pigpen? Yes. So Pigpen always had a cloud yes, around him. Cloud of dirt and, and um, dust. Every human being has their own cloud, and the cloud is made up of skin cells, their breath, bacteria, other emissions from the human body, uh-huh. because we just think it was an emission, whatever, 10 minutes ago, but mm-hmm. it tends to stick and it be- to the human, and it becomes a cloud. A cloud. So, you know, my boys oh. had a... Really, they had big clouds of emissions. Yes. Yeah. Boys do that. They do. Yeah. yeah. And especially when all the windows are rolled up in the car. Yeah. And they seem to do that and yeah. think it's funny. Isn't that funny? Yeah. That cloud yeah. is not funny. It's not funny. But no. here's the deal. Even if you don't do that a lot, we all have a cloud. And you know what is so gross? Check this out. So they placed 11 people in a sanitized chamber. Mm-hmm. And then they tested the chamber for the microbes in the air using air filters and Petri dishes. Oh, my. And they could figure out that every every person had their own, what would they call it? They had their own signature. And it was so distinctive that they could tell who was in the chamber. And they could bring them back and they could, they could say, oh, that's this person because this is their signature. Oh, my word. And we all have that. Now, think about that. As humans, so it's not even just that this is so... How many kids today, teenager kids, use Axe spray? Mm-hmm. So they're all the Axe spray, sprayed yeah. up on top of all of the other stuff that's going on. But it would blow your mind. They, it ended up being about 312 samples hmm. of different things that the sensors picked up. Wow. And all of that. So you scratch your head and thousands of skin cells, cell fragments, bacteria – and fun, fungi are get airborne. Your breath, even your emissions, all the things like that, <laughs> it all gets there. And then the, he says, the world is covered in a fine patina of feces. Hmm. So it's like it's not, it's not even percept, you can't even perceive it, but the Petri dish would. Oh, my word. Come Isn't on. that creepy? <laughs> so we're all about I thought a bunch- the cloud is just where all my... Information was being no, stored. That's a different Other cloud. things are being stored there. So I want you to know that. Mm-hmm. Everybody out there, you're walking yeah, around. You and so have you ever heard So of, when you say get your head out of the cloud. Yeah, that's it's time to shower. Yeah. You could even shower, but even the, it doesn't matter because you're still gonna have skin cells and other things and mm. even your clothes are going to have that fine patina wow. of you. Ooh. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Anyway, so watch weird. out for that because as we're talking about social and growing up I'm social. I'm sure an immense cloud is much different than a woman's cloud. Oh I'm yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the man cloud is just it's deadly. The man cloud. So anyway, and it, it could be anything, right? It could even just be your dinner. Have you ever had somebody that came to a meeting in the morning and you could smell oh. bacon on them? Oh yeah. Or the tuna fish, like we talked oh, the about tuna yesterday. Was yeah. Horrible. Ooh, or curry. Ugh, hate oh. curry. Have you ever had curry tuna? Mm, no. With bacon. I'm not a curry person. Yuck. Love it. Yeah. Anyway, so watch out, folks. Yeah. Watch out for your cloud. Know that uh, <laughs> it's out there. Anyway, stick with That's us. Let's bizarre. go to Kathy, find out what's going on in the headlines. Good morning, everyone. Hurricane Joaquin, which intensified into a Category 3, bore down today in central and eastern Bahamas. Forecasters say it could grow more intense while following a path that may hit the east coast by the weekend. Governors along the east coast are warning residents to prepare for severe weather and flooding. According to U.S. 
officials yesterday's airstrikes in Syria by Russia targeted areas held by rebels receiving arms, funding and training by the CIA, strikes that reportedly killed dozens of civilians. U.S. Defense Secretary Ash Carter challenged Moscow's claims that they're only targeting ISIS and warned the strikes may backfire and only inflame Syria's civil war. Iranian forces have reportedly now entered Syria to aid Russian forces. GOP presidential candidate Donald Trump spoke about his new tax plan last night, then also weighed in on the Syrian refugee crisis in Europe. And I'll tell you right now, and I'm putting everybody on notice, that are coming here from Syria as part of this mass migration, that if I win, they're going back. They're going back. I'm telling you, they're going back. Trump made those remarks at a rally in New Hampshire. Congress passed a temporary spending measure last night and President Obama signed it. That means the government will continue to run at least through December 11th. Russian hackers reportedly tried five times to break into Hillary Clinton's private email account while she was Secretary of State. The hackers sent infected emails disguised as speeding tickets in August of 2011. The infected emails asked recipients to print the attached tickets, and that would have allowed hackers to take control of their computers. No word on whether or not Clinton clicked on those attachments. A new government report yesterday says dozens of U.S. Secret Service employees improperly accessed a job application by Utah Congressman Jason Chaffetz. The application was for a job with the Secret Service 12 years ago. The information was viewed by at least 45 employees, and the idea was to embarrass the congressman because of his investigation into scandals inside the agency. Digesting it, uh, shocked and surprised. It's a bit scary. If they if they would do this to me, I just I shudder to think what they might be doing to other people. Releasing the information may represent criminal violations under the U.S. Privacy Act. An Oklahoma death row inmate received a second stay of execution last night. Richard Glossop was set to die by lethal injection after he was convicted of orchestrating the murder of a hotel manager in 1997. Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon ruled on the stay, citing concerns on the chemicals used in the execution. Glossop's stay is for 37 days. The remains of an 18-year-old Colorado man who had been missing for seven years were found yesterday in the chimney of an abandoned cabin less than one mile from his home. The remains were found when contractors tore down the cabin in Woodland Park. Dental records were used to identify Joshua Maddox, who was reported missing in May of 2008. The death was ruled accidental. And Matt, it first aired on December 9th of 1965. Name that holiday classic. Uh, December? Um, 50 years ago? You actually mentioned the character just a little bit ago. I did? Mm-hmm. Pigpen. Close, yeah. Oh, uh, Char- uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas. Christmas, very good. Really? Yeah, 50 years ago it first started. Now you can get in on the classic with Charlie Brown Christmas stamps. Oh, I can't believe we're cute. talking Christmas. The stamps will feature the most memorable scenes from the holiday special. So we've got Charlie Brown bringing in the sad tree to mm, the Christmas play. That was sad. Snoopy's decorated doghouse yeah. and Pigpen's dirty snowman. You know what? Don't lick the pig pen stamp. No. <laughs> Don't that do would it. be a bad cloud. That right is there. a bad, That's a bad cloud. cloud. Okay. Oh, but pre orders are now available. And you know, it's kind of depressing when you go. I don't know if Costco has Christmas stuff up yet, but he's like, come on. I know, we're not that, even, we're not yeah. even to Halloween. Come on. Come on. I think if, Halloween's already – yeah, Halloween's been up for a while. Let us spend a lot of money on Halloween yeah, first. Yeah, let's get the candy and And then the, let us spend a lot bills. of money on Thanksgiving. Yeah. Then let's get then to let's Christmas. Then let's get to Christmas, yeah. It doesn't work Holy that cow. way. Yeah. What are they doing? Yeah. Well, that's good That was news. one of my favorite. I loved that one. I did too. Charlie Brown Christmas. I liked Lucy. Lucy's why I wanted to be a psychologist. Really? Yeah. She had all the answers. But you don't charge just five cents. Not anymore. Ten cents now. 
up in the prices. Thank you, Kathy. Well done. Hey, uh, have you ever wondered how you're going to get your children to put those cell phones down and actually interact with each other? Well, joining us in just a few minutes, Arlene Pelican will be with us. She co-authored a book with Gary Chapman. The book's called Growing Up Social, Raising Relational Kids in a Screen-Driven World. Stick with us, folks. This is an important, very important um, guest, and uh, we're going to lose our kids otherwise. Got to be careful. It's not enough to just be good on screen. We need to be good face-to-face, don't we? We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, folks, you know, nowadays it seems so rare, doesn't it, to uh, see kids playing in the sandbox, exploring the outdoors, making crafts with mom and dad. Instead, their face is pressed up against a little glass screen. They're playing video games online. They're on their phones. They're tweeting. They're Facebooking. In fact, did you know that studies show that high school girls average about 4,300 text messages a month? 4,300, and about 4,000 of those come from Ben, which is why he sings. Yes, I love technology. Which is why he sings that song every day. How do we raise our children in this technologically driven era and make sure that they're still going to be able to function socially? Well, our next guest, Arlene Pelican, is the co-author with Gary Chapman of the book Growing Up Social. She's joining us today to help us figure out how to raise relational kids in the screen-driven world. Arlene, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Great to be with you, Matt. We're going to help you get your kids to look at you and not their screens. We need that. How do we do that? Because we we don't want to throw a fit and we don't want to pretend like technology's evil, horrible. It's just a tool. So... First, just teach me, what's the effect? What's the big deal? Why should parents, because some don't think it's a big deal, why should parents make sure that their kids still are social, are engaged, instead of just being on the devices? Yeah. I think of it for us as parents, if we ask ourselves, am I raising a child or am I raising an adult? Because if I'm raising a child, go ahead, play your video games, be happy, right. be in La La Land, you know, don't be loud, and just that's great. But if I am raising an adult, then I see, okay, if, I, if you can't sit in this restaurant for 10 minutes and talk to me, play tic-tac-toe on a napkin, kind of talk about the menu choices together, and you need to be on that screen, then I have to realize as an adult, how is this going to impact you? Are you going to be able to focus on something that isn't fun? You know, so it's this idea of, okay, if I am raising an adult, my adult child is going to need to be able to look their boss in the eye, be able to talk to their spouse, be able to have fun with their kids face-to-face. And these people skills are so necessary. And the things that we used to, you know, just take for granted, like a a kid shaking an adult's hand and saying, nice to meet you, Mr. Jones. Right. You know, now if someone says, nice to meet you, Mr. Jones, they're like, wow, 
what are you doing with your child? <laughs> you know, like it's That's so right. Revolutionary that your child looked up and shook the person's hand. So we need to realize that our children need these very basic people skills, and that should not be that extraordinary. And the screen time is robbing us of that time to train them to do that. Isn't that funny? I mean, yeah, like it's shocking. Like oh, your child looked me in the eye. It's amazing. Right. What are you? No, it's yeah. It's just how it should be, right? Yeah. It um, is. So so what are some things? How do we go about? Balancing the screen time and the family time. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it is having other activities that are not screen-driven. So whether it is having uh, homework time, having, you know, that's a favorite, I know, for kids, yeah. but having your homework time, having an instrument that they play, having one sport maybe they're involved in, having a family game night, um, being on purpose to say, okay, you know, Friday night is no screens, and instead we are going to do games together. We're going to go out to the park and play laser tag. We're going to do stuff. And, you know, at first your kids might think, like, I don't want to do that I want to watch my movie right but, but once you start your kids will realize hey this is really fun and so I think for parents to schedule non-screen activities and you have to do that on purpose mm-hmm. unless you've kind of premeditated this is what we're going to do with this evening it's just going to go everyone what happens someone's watching sports somebody else is doing their social media somebody else has got their earbuds on and they're listening and all of a sudden you're all together under one roof, but everyone with their own screen. And that's what we want to help parents say, you know, that does not have to be the norm. Yeah. It's, but you're saying it's, it has to be intentional. Like you're not yeah. going to accidentally have this happen. Right. <laughs> you need to consistently say, okay, this is what we're doing. And you'll, it seems like in my family, we always hear complaining until we do it. Yeah. And then, I mean, in my family, it, it's, I've even learned sometimes it's better to collect the phones. To collect them. So while we're doing this activity, just turn them in. Let's lock them in the glove compartment of the car and we'll go play ball right now. Yeah. And that's for adults, too. Yeah. You know, because so much of it is sometimes it's the kids saying, okay, sure, but why is my dad always checking his email and why is my mom always got her nose in the phone? And so for us parents, we need to model, you know, this is our technology and we use it to communicate to people. But when my real live flesh and blood person is in front of me, yeah. instead of looking down at my phone, continuing, continuing, I would look up at my child, say, what do you need? Because whoever is texting you on the phone, it's okay. I think we are so used to, they have to hear back from us immediately that we think we have to do that. But really, that can wait. Uh, mm. in, in many cases, it can wait. And you can give your child, your spouse, that eye contact, that, you know, attention that shows them I am more important than my mom or dad's yeah. eyes. Do you, have a, do you have a philosophy, a theory on how young is too young for a child to have the technology? Yeah. Well, you know, when we, we go to the doctor, we listen to them very carefully about what our child eats and how many times the baby poops and all that. Yeah, no, totally. But when it comes to technology, they suggest, you know, no screen time from birth to age two and then two hours or less from two to 18. And, you know, for many families, they're rolling their eyes and they're thinking, how is that possible? Because, yeah, I've got a one-year-old, but I also have a four-year-old and a six-year-old, and they're always watching TV, so my baby's exposed. Or two hours for a 10-year-old? Are you kidding me? So, so much of it, I think, is taking those guidelines and saying to yourself as a family, how close can we get to that and how close do we want to get to that? You know, there are some families that will say two hours is too much. I don't want my kid on Mm -hmm. a screen that much. But others, you know, are closer to that average nationally, you know, seven or eight hours. And they're saying, okay, maybe we need to scale back to six. 
And so I think if you can keep screens out of your child's life, um, as, as like just be vigilant about it so through age two, because what's happening is kids, these little babies, you know, they've got to learn how to speak by trying, by babbling, by muttering, by having that back and forth communication with a mom or a dad or a caregiver, just a human being, but not the television right. and not the screen. And so many um, people that I talk to that are speech therapists are saying we're seeing so many more kids because in that vital time there was screens and instead of learning how to talk and form words they're just passively watching oh yeah and so for us as parents to realize that's not good and we have to make sure that there is that back and forth communication and i've heard so many moms say i didn't even realize it but while i'm feeding my child in the high chair i'm scrolling through social media because (laughs) of course that's a tedious task it's mundane and they think i can multitask and so they're feeding and they're scrolling and they realize I'm not talking to my baby. I'm not looking at my baby. And, and, and really, even though that's a picture of a baby in a high chair, you, it's also a picture of how we are with our 5-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old, that, that we're kind of coexisting next to each other, but we're looking at our own screens. And so we've just got to be very intentional about leaving those screens behind, at least through age two. And then I think that two hours or less is a good standard to try for, you know, and to make plans for. Oh, yeah. We um – in fact, I'll never forget the day my five-year-old was leaving our house and he said, I'll be back. <laughs> and I thought, okay, he's on screen too much. Yeah. This kid needs a job. This kid <laughs> needs something else. He's talking like the Terminator. Right, exactly. But it's it, thrill, it, isn't it? Yeah, and it's so, you know, it, it shapes your child. You don't realize it. And then you think, where are they getting all these ideas? Yeah. <laughs> you see, oh, they've watched it. They've seen it. <laughs> it is so sad. Yeah. But we also, I guess, too, don't want to discourage technology because it is such it's such a big part of their future and they you want them skilled and tooled you want i mean and i already see my young kids they're they've got they've got the gift and um so how how do you how do you make sure they're getting enough time too to be healthy and that they're getting the skills they need in technology and I think that is a fear. You think, oh, if my baby does not watch this TV, they will be stupid. When yeah, they right. Grow up, you know? Right. Or if they don't learn this, they're going to be like, the, the, you know, have this menial task because they don't know anything. They don't know any IT. Um, but, you know, they did this study at UCLA that brings comfort to any parent wondering this. They took 12 people who did not use the Internet at all, had them surf the Internet, and then they took 12 very experienced users, scanned their brains, and they saw, wow, look, their brains look very different. The ones that were used to the Internet showed firing and that quick decision-making, the periphery vision. They're the ones that can, oh, let me message this person, and oh, look at this headline, and oh, let me text this person back. Well, they had the non-users just spend five hours on the Internet, one hour a day for Hmm. five days in a row and then in the study they scanned their brains once again and in just five hours their brains looked exactly like the ones that were these expert users so what i love to tell parents is technology is very easy for a child to pick up you don't when you give a child an ipad you don't have to say now honey here's how you do this and here's i mean in 10 minutes they're doing things that you were like i didn't know it could do that right Like, right. Like they can learn it. They can pick it up. And I always laugh that by the time our children, you know, let's say they're five, you know, 20 years from now, technology will be so easy that they will say, cheese pizza, please. And a little drone will drop it. Exactly. So it's, it's not going to get harder. It's going to get easier. But in those same five hours in that study that it took to train these, these people to use the Internet, uh, can I take a child who's played video games for two hours a day their whole life? And in five hours, can I teach them how to read a 200-page book? You know, can yeah. I do that at age 10? 
And most likely I can't. Yeah. And I cannot teach that child. We talk in the book with, that I've written with Dr. Gary Chapman about these five A-plus emotional skills. And they're showing affection, appreciation, anger management, apology, and attention. And I can't dump in five hours, hey, here's an app for you to learn these emotional skills. Right. But that needs time. But I can very easily teach technology. So yeah. for us as parents, let's not get in this trap of the computer is going to fix everything, but realize, yeah, that's a tool and that's part of it. But the job of parenting and the character of your child, most of that happens without an app, without a screen. And don't worry, your child will not be left behind. In fact, if they know how to read that 200-page book, They'll be the boss. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's exactly right. Who, who can't? They'll have the MBA, right? Yeah. And and then they'll catch up. I totally agree with you. We're again, we're speaking with Arlene Pellicane, who's the author, co-author with Dr. Gary Chapman of the book Growing Up Social, Raising Relational Kids in a Screen-Driven World. Let's take a break. We'll be right back and continue the discussion. In fact, I really want to get into those those tools that she was talking about, the, um, the, the skills of growing up social. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Townsend Show. Those darn kids and their technology. You know, we still, as much as you love technology, we still need to get our kids to be social, to interact, to understand the art uh, behind social relationships, social engagement. Joining us on the phone is Arlene Pellicane, who is the co-author with the book Dr., uh, with Dr. Gary Chapman. The book's called Growing Up Social. Raising Relational Kids in a Screen-Driven World. And um, you can get information about that and all of uh, Arlene's other books on our website, ArlenePelicane.com. But Arlene, welcome back. Thanks again for spending this time with us. Thank you, Matt. Such an interesting topic. Talk to us about the skills. You talk about five, kind of five A-plus skills that our, our children need to have. Just do a quick run-through of the five A's. Yeah, the first A is the skill of affection. Can your child give and receive love? And kind of think of your children as I run through these. The next one is appreciation. Is your child a grateful child or are they, you know, this entitled child? The third A is anger management. Does your child know what to do with their anger when they feel that? The fourth is apology. Can your child apologize? Not just text, sorry, you know, a little emoticon, but can right. they express, I'm sorry, and this is why? And the last one's real important, and that's attention. Can your child pay attention? Can they sit through their school lesson? Can they mm. have the discipline to read that book and write the little paragraph about it? Etc. So, can they pay attention? Man, affection, appreciation, attention, anger yeah. management, and apology. You got it. Those are um, when you think about it, because some of those are known uh, problems with this new technology age. Right? This it's, the attention span, for example, is shrinking as we're using more and more technology. Yeah, they say since the year 2000 that our attention span has shrunk 40%. Mm. And you can ask any teacher, you know, 15 years ago, they might have said, everybody get in a circle, and people would get in a circle. See you in a minute. they say it, and it's like, 
okay, five people are in a circle, and two people are in the corner, and now we've got the two people, but now the five people have moved. And it's just, <laughs> why can we not pay attention to these simplest things? And it's because, you know, with your technology, think of it, your child, when they want something, you know, if they have to wait just a tiny bit, it's like, Mom, this is not working. <laughs> Dad, this so wrong. True. Well, you know, it's funny with us. It's I always make a big joke about um, how hard it is just to get our children together at night to, like, have a family prayer. Right. <laughs> and it's like, sit, kneel. No, put the phone away. Give me the ball. Give me the ball. I mean, parting the Red Sea is one thing, but getting yeah. your kids to just get together for a prayer, it's hard. And every one of them has a phone in their hand. Yeah. It's crazy. And then everyone says, well, yeah, but Matt, you're the one that gave them the phone. But I didn't. It was my wife. Let's get clear on that. So so what do we – these are all little skills, and I guess part of it is to do a little assessment with your children and find out how are they really at showing love to others? How are they at, at being grateful? Okay. And And then I guess you could target in and use your book to kind of target in on some skills to grow. That's right. And there are a lot of practical suggestions. So, for instance, for gratitude, you know, it, that is so important because they show even research backs it up that a grateful child is more resilient. They're better at school. They're less prone to headaches, sick, uh, feeling sick, stomach aches, et cetera. Because you think of it, if you're grumbling all the time, you don't feel so good. Right. But if you are thankful, like, thank you, mom, for this, you know, whatever it is, and they realize that, that's so beneficial to their soul, to their health, all those things. And yet the screens show us, I want it better. I want the best one, Mm. you know, and they show you all these advertisements. So of course now they want all this stuff that they didn't even know exists. And then, you know, and and there are, they want it faster. They have always have choice. There's always those drop down menus of, oh, let me do something else. If they're watching TV and they don't like it, they can find another of 200 other channels for them to look through. So there is so much choice and a child can be so entitled. So if you see that your child is kind of, you know, wanting it now, wanting it better, (laughs) not very grateful, then you think, you know what, we've got to ease back a little bit on these screens. And at the end of each day, let's talk about three things that you are really grateful for. And you make that kind of a new practice in your home or have an older child that knows how to write. You keep a gratitude journal. We all, we'll, Our whole family will do it for a week. And at the end of the week, we'll go through this and we'll see what we're grateful for. Mm. Because the thing is, it doesn't happen automatically for really adults or children. You have to say, okay, this is how we are going to amp up the gratitude in our home. And so the book has a lot of ideas that you can use. Yeah, no, I love that. Give us some more ideas about what if I've noticed my child socially is hiding behind their technology. Yeah. They're they're avoiding they're not just avoiding it. Maybe they're an introvert and they'd rather just kind of go be by themselves. Right. And I think this is wonderful for parents to hear because sometimes we'll just excuse it. We'll just say, oh, they're shy and they're with technology and we'll just excuse it and we'll make excuses for it instead of saying, okay, my shy child does not have to be the center of attention. That's not the purpose. You know, they don't have to come in and be the most boisterous person in the lot. No. But my shy child that's hiding, let's say, that's always got their nose in the screen, not looking up at people, that you just realize, okay, they need to at least be able to make eye contact with who they're meeting and maybe say one sentence, you know? And so you set that bar and that goal and you say, no, you cannot hide behind your video game. And when you meet someone new that you look at them, you say their name, nice to meet you, and maybe you ask one question, how is your day going today? Or what do you do for a living, sir? Or whatever it is. And you practice at home. 
and you let your child know that when that happens, if we see that you're not able to do that, then that's going to have some kind of consequence. Maybe they will not have the screens for the rest of the day that day or whatever the case may be. And it may sound like, oh, that's so mean. But really you're teaching that child to kind of go beyond their comfort zone. And it's not anything crazy. You know, you're not asking them to stand on the table and sing a song to everybody. Right, <laughs> right. Say, look up. And so really don't make excuses for your child that's kind of hidden in their technology and think, oh, that's how all kids are today. Because that's mm. kind of how we do it as parents. But to say, well, if that's how all kids are today, my kid is going to be different. And my kid's going to look that person in the eye and they're going to be able to engage with people. Because that's going to help them. Because many of us don't necessarily want to go out and talk to people. But if we have that skill, that's going to help us down the road. Oh, yeah. Um, as we wrap this up, again, the book is called Growing Up Social, Raising Relational Kids in a Screen-Driven World. And Arlene Pelican is our guest. Arlene, as you wrap this up, talk to us. Um, there's hope, right? Mm-hmm. There is. You know, my kids are in first grade, fourth grade, and sixth grade. And they are normal kids. And, you know, we shot this commercial, a little commercial for Grow Up Social, where we show a family, and it was depicted by our family on screens all day. And then we shot it again, like, what if? You know, instead mm-hmm. of having screens at that moment, you had this connecting moment. Well, my friend who lent me all these iPads said to me, Arlene, you know that once the, your kids see all these games and what they've been missing, it's going to open Pandora's box for you. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, is this true? I thought, okay, well, let's see. Well, that day, they loved it. They were like, that was so fun, Mom. We had so much fun. They're like discovering all this. Right. We had so much fun. But the very next day, we had all those iPads still in our house. My friend hadn't picked them up, but they did not once ask, Mom, can we play another game? You know, I let my daughter use my phone all day looking at pictures mm. and videos. She didn't once ask that day, Mom, can I use your phone? And the reason is because it's the norm for them not to have them. You know, so yeah. like if they need to do something, sure, go pick up my phone and text Grandma that we're on our way. It's fine. We're not afraid of it. But the norm is for them to go outside or to pick up a book or to start playing a game together or whatever. And so just have that hope that as you make it more normal for screens not to be the main player in your home, your kids can handle that and your kids will actually thrive under it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, I think it's great advice and a book well worth uh, checking out. Again, Arlene, thank you so much for your help, your insight, and uh, look forward to having you back on the show sometime. Thank you so much, Matt. I would love that. You bet. Take care. And again, everybody, go check out the book, Growing Up Social, Raising Relational Kids in a Screen-Driven World by Dr. Gary Chapman and Arlene Pelican. You can also go to her website, ArlenePelican.com. We'll take a break, my friends. Uh, And when we come back, we'll be visiting our good friends down at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Get you ready for that. We'll also be going over our uh, Townsend's Heroes and a few other news stories. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, I love a little Peanuts music. What better way to send it down to our good buddies there at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, oh man. Good grief, Charlie Brown. Good grief. Good grief. Hey, who's your favorite uh, Charlie Brown character? Linus. Really? Because he just carries around that blanket. Are you a blanket guy? (laughs) 
No. Spence, you seem like a blanket. Or Jeremy. Spence is not here like, yet. You, you seem like a... Spence is walking up right now. Is he? Yeah. Is he carrying a blanket? Yes. He's carrying a blanket like Linus. Linus. I played the Charlie Brown theme comeback. Jerem. Jerem right. likes the blanket, Linus. Spencer, uh, what's your? who's your favorite character on Peanuts? As he's getting situated. Calm down. How are you, brother? He seems pretty calm. I hey. am razor burned. Are you? <laughs> your legs? Uh, <laughs> nope. Okay. But good guess. Thank you. Hey, uh, who's your favorite character on Peanuts? Charlie Brown. Snoopy. Yeah. Going for the dog. Mm-hmm. Personally? Snoopy. Joe Cool. Do you remember that? No, I don't remember Joe Cool. Joe Cool was a nickname for Snoopy. Really? Yes. Joe Cool. Uh-huh. You guys. I had some t-shirts when I was a little boy that had Joe Cool on it with Snoopy with, like, sunglasses on. Uh, I was Snoopy for Halloween when I was like three. What's <laughs> who's your favorite character? Uh, I like um, I like Pigpen. <laughs> we we just did a cloud story. Of dust and exclamation. We just did a story that every human being swear. has a cloud around them. Did you know that? A true detectable cloud that if they put you into a um, if they put you into like a what was it called? They had a chamber where they a sanitized chamber. They could test all the microbes and bacteria on your body, and it gives an, kind of a, a signature for you. And mm. honestly, it's fairly disgusting because it's skin cells, it's bad breath, it's bacteria, it's, it's, it's flatulence, it's everything. And they don't go away. So you think this stuff goes away, but it clings on and it becomes part of your cloud. Therefore, I like pig pen. Wah, 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 and wah, I love wah, the wah, teacher wah, wah. and the parents. Wah, 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 wah. Um, There's a movie coming out. Yeah? You excited for it? Uh, not really. Hey, what about this, guys? November 6th. That's coming up quick. Um, if there was peanut butter that came out with an extra dose of caffeine, so caffeinated peanut butter, would you buy it? Like caffeinated chocolate? Like yeah. since chocolate has caffeine in it. Right, but this is but actually... I don't think of caffeine when I eat chocolate. Right, but peanut butter, this would just be, you know, like two and a half cups of coffee in your peanut butter. What? <laughs> It'll light you up, yeah, apparently. literally. People are doing this now, and it's they're using it to get rid of um, hangovers. Caffeinated <laughs> peanut butter gives you protein, and it gives you caffeine. The two eans that make the day worthwhile. Why do you need caffeine in your peanut butter? I don't know. Are there but... not a billion other ways to get caffeine? Yeah. You, you think we used to over-diagnose attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder before. Wait till our kids are eating caffeinated peanut butter sandwiches for lunch. Honey, what's wrong with the children? Bing, bing, oh, bing. I mixed up the peanut butter. <laughs> Did you give the kids my peanut butter? <laughs> Daddy's special this peanut a, blend. This is adult peanut butter. It's <laughs> <laughs> so sad. Oh, my are we going what? to start putting ratings on food labels? I know. It's pitiful. What's happening to us? This food I, content uh, I kind 14. Of, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of just want, yes, for my little daughter's the cutest little thing when she, peanut butter, mm-hmm. <laughs> peanut butter. Wait till she's like got it all over her Caffeinated peanut lips butter. and she's bouncing off the walls. More, dad, more, dad. I need more peanut butter. Peanut butter. <laughs> It is pitiful. We are going to have this peanut butter is for mature audiences only. <laughs> Spiked peanut what butter. What kind of grocery store do you go to? 
This proof 100 drink is food content mature. <laughs> my grocery the world? <laughs> They've painted all the windows in my grocery store so nobody can look in. <laughs> it's that adult. Hey, um, yeah, see how fast we just regress into weird holes. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, you guys still doing your show though, right? We are doing that. And is I everybody on the regular it's, version? It's TV PG. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, it's good. Back to the TV PG. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what's on your show today? John Beck, one of the great BYU quarterbacks on the show. He has perhaps the manliest injury of all, playing for the BC Lions in the Canadian Football League. He has you a, torn, guess? a torn pectoral, man. Oh, well, that could, there goes that. He, he done tore his pec. Right. Are you kidding me? That's the point. Don't you have to have a pec to tear one? I guess so. Yeah. We all do. That's what they say. We all do. <laughs> John Beck on the show. We're going to try and figure out what in the world happened with the BYU passing game, specifically mm. against Michigan. Yeah. He was pretty good through the first three matches. Then all of a sudden, nothing works on Saturday. Yeah. That, yeah, that went sideways, didn't it? Do you want to hear a sound effect for that? Yeah, but you need to put that on blast like 25 times. Like, give it some caffeine. Inject it with some caffeine. Yes. Uh, I, I can't. <laughs> I, I can't. Um, no. That was a sound bite just for the first few drives. Yeah. That, that was. The foghorn that does that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Pretty much. We're not that advanced here. No, BYU is trying to turn the page. and You know we can't afford the fun pack, Napoleon. Why not look <laughs> at the, the, the group uh, that was the most consistent in fall camp that had been so good through the first three games as kind of a, a launching pad for getting BYU back on track against UConn. And yesterday we talked about uh, there's some banged up running backs. We'll see who goes, who doesn't. But BYU will probably need these receivers to be good because... The running backs are inexperienced. That BYU could throw out there if the experienced guys are hurt. And it's going to be raining a lot. I think BYU will run the ball more than they will pass on Friday night, tomorrow. Really? Really? But it's tough because the the experience and the talent on offense is mostly in the, pos- in, in the position group of wide receivers. These guys need to bring it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know what? Tell them that. Be Make- elite. That bring, easy. Bring it. Their, their coach, their uh, position group coach, uh, Guy Holiday, said the following yesterday, something to the uh, degree of, you can't be 6'6 and play like you're 5'11. Oh, man. If I had you a dollar for every time I've said that. Yeah. Shots fired. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, pretty, that's some pretty strong language from, uh, that is. from the coach. Oh, boy. Because not all the receivers are 6'6". So there's one he's talking about. Well, yeah. two of them specifically. I know. He mentioned that's them big... by name. Oh, oh, he did. Oh, he yeah. did. Nick Kurtz and yeah. Mitch Matthews. Yes. Who these guys are good receivers. Yeah. They are. They. We've had this, uh, you know, month, several months long debate about elite or not with Mitch Matthews, whether he's elite or not. They, he's a very good receiver. Nick Kurtz can be a very good receiver. Taryn Houck, Devon Blackman, Mitchell Jurgens, this whole group, Colby Pearson. I like. I like them. They're good receivers. They mm. played well through the first three games. But it's time for them to take it to another level. They've got to help out the freshman quarterback. Yes. I agree. That's that's basically the show. It's like we'll, uh, we'll have a lot more, though, yeah. on the show. Oh, I'm sure. I'm, yeah, are you John kidding? John Beck will be on. It would be great. Yeah, you, you guys can't even get into really how much is going to be on the show because there's so much on the show. It's just it's unbelievable how much more is going to be on the show today. I know. I can't even believe it myself. Anyway. We pack a punch, man. Yep, and remember, 
You can't, if you're 6'6", you can't play like you're 5'11". Duh. <laughs> I never do. That's a great line. What if you're 5'11"? Can you play like you're 6'6"? Absolutely. Larry Fitzgerald does that in the NFL. All you need are two, scat, two scoops of caffeinated peanut butter. You'll play like <laughs> you're 7'6". You'll just climb those defenders. Or uh, I guess those receivers. Yeah. Hashtag caffeinated peanut butter. Hashtag climbing receivers. Hey, guys. Great job. Have a great show. Thank you, sir. Remember who you are, what you represent. Always do. Remember the promise. <laughs> Remember the Titans. Over and out. Uh, fun, fun game. I think I've introduced them to caffeinated peanut butter. Who to thunk? But I guarantee you, tomorrow their show will be completely different because it will be now caffeinated. Peanut butter caffeinated. Mm. Hey, uh, we've got to do a few other stories for you before we, we break for today. One that we've, I've got to just tell you about, it, you know, it's sad. A police, uh, police were called to McDonald's over a Pickles fight. Police say officers had to uh, stop a public disturbance at a McDonald's after a customer began harassing employees over Pickles that were on his order. It was crazy. Mayhem. The man was angry that employees gave him pickles and later created commotion, a commotion. Workers told police he started throwing things off the store's countertops because of the mistake. You gave me pickles. I hate pickles. Oh, man. You're a monster. He is a monster. You don't throw stuff because somebody put pickles on your sandwich. What are you, three? Please say the man whose name was not released because he was not arrested or cited was issued a verbal warning by officers. No one was injured. Verbal warning. Hey, knock it off. Don't do that again. Come on. You can't fight over pickles. So frustrating. Anyway, the end of the show, we always like to give you a hero. And, man, I've got a great one today. His name is Todd Bachman. He's a father from Ohio, and he did, I think, one of the coolest things. And there's a video. We'll put it up on our Twitter page, at Dr. Matt Show. Um, he basically, listen to this. Anticipation is high even for dads involved in a wedding, sometimes even more so for stepdads. You know, they don't know where they fit in necessarily. The gesture between a father and a stepfather at this wedding will have you smiling. Planning for the wedding day, joy often comes with pain. And when you're a stepfather of the bride, sometimes it's even harder. Every time we tried on tuxes or did some planning, it crossed my mind that I'd be sitting in the crowd, not walking down the aisle with my stepdaughter, Todd Sendrowski, the stepfather of Brittany Peck, said. Peck was married last week in Lorain County, Idaho. During the wedding, Brittany's biological father, Todd Bachman, walked up to the wedding photographer with a message. He told me, I'm going to do something special. Be ready. Wedding photographer Delia Blackburn said, Bachman said that there was only one way to show Sandrowski how much he and Peck appreciated him. For me to thank him for all of the years of helping raise our daughter, it wouldn't be enough. He said, there's no better way to thank somebody than to assist Help them, uh, have them assist me walking my bride daughter down the aisle. Stepdad Sandrowski was waiting for the bride to come down the aisle when he felt a tug at his arm. Brittany's biological father came up, 
grabbed him by the hand and said, you worked as hard as I have. You helped us. You need to help us walk our daughter down the aisle. He said, I got weak in the knees and lost it. Nothing better in my life. The most important, impactful moment in my life. Blackburn posted the pictures of the Facebook on Facebook, and they quickly went viral. Within the first 30 hours, more than 12 million people had viewed the photos. Merging two families wasn't easy, and it wasn't well-received, he said. But during the last 14 years, there have been a lot of tough stretches. It hasn't always been peaches and cream by any stretch of the imagination. Bachman said he would never have imagined the story would go viral. A lot of families can relate to our situation. So for you, uh, Todd Bachman and... Um, also, or Todd Sandrosky, and uh, I appreciate you. Really, truly, you're both the heroes of the day. It doesn't matter if you're the biological or the step or the adopted father. It takes a village, doesn't it, to raise healthy, happy humans. So we celebrate all of you, the Bachmans and uh, Todd Bachman and Todd, Todd Sandrowski for modeling for all of us what healthy living looks like. That's the show, folks. We'll be back tomorrow. Until tomorrow, take care. We'll talk again tomorrow.